Hi, this is David Mish. I'm a screenwriter. I wrote for Mork and Mindy, The Muppets Take Manhattan, and Saturday Night Live. And you're listening to the Then Is Now podcast. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Hi, this is Rigor, host of Then Is Now Podcast and The East Meets the West. I just wanted to say thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate your support as we grow the audience for our shows. You can find our links to our Patreon page as well as our Tee Public page at havenpodcasts.com. With Patreon, you'll get a lot of exclusive stuff, including our monthly pop culture newsletter, cool gifts, discounts for Tee Public, and our special exclusive show, Then Is Now Filmmakers Series, in which we interview directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects guys, basically anybody who works behind the scenes in film and television and get their insights into the process of creating films and TV shows. Also at our Tee Public page, you'll find cool merch that you can get or even give to others as gifts. You can find those links at our website, or you can go directly to tpublic.com slash stores slash havenpodcasts and patreon.com slash thenisnowpodcast. Enjoy! What kind of a sick school is this? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend. I love to celebrate plum in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I've got a crap on your deck that you choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A Daniel May! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose with your rubber hose. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. (laughs) 
Hello and welcome to Then Is Now podcast, the show in which we discuss pop culture of the past and how it relates today, as well as helping introduce the younger generation to all the cool stuff they missed out on. I am your host, Rigor, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Esper. How's it going, Chris? Hey, how's it going? I'm doing well. Um, hope you're having a happy holiday. Yep, yep. So far, so good. Are you all ready for Christmas? Just about. I'm just missing, like, one or two gifts I have to buy, but uh, otherwise, I'm pretty much good to go. It's, you know, it's nice because I, uh, I'm off for two weeks from work, which is really exciting. So it's, like, my first, like, vacation in, like, oh, I don't know, maybe about a year since I started the job. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, good for you. Yeah, my wife's on vacation, too. She's, uh... And, and uh, you know, she's a teacher, so and she teaches at a Catholic yeah. school, so she's been on vacation since, like, right, right. Friday, I think. That's awesome. Um, I'm mentally ready for it, but, um, you know, because I just recently started back in my full-time job, I had a p- one paycheck, but it was real low because I only had a low amount of hours in that pay period. So I, yeah. <laughs> I can't do any Christmas shopping till the 23rd when oh, I get no. paid again. <laughs> so I'll be panicking that day, but, you know, I'm looking yeah, forward to I'm it. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> She's covered a lot of, you know, like my kids and stuff for the most part. Um, yeah. So um, I'm trying to think when this is going to air. I think I mentioned last episode I got a cool gift at the Rhode Island Comic Con for my son. I'll say this. It, it's an autograph because chances are he doesn't listen to the show. It's, um, uh, oh, why can't I think of the guy's name now? It's the dude who plays, he played the prophet. Um, the Asian dude who played the prophet on Supernatural. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's right. also the the new Adam on The Flash. Yep. Damn, his name his name's not coming to mind right now, but yeah, no, same. But no, that, that's great though. That's yeah, awesome. Kevin yeah. Tran is the character he played on Supernatural. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to this holiday, especially because it's my niece's first. Uh, Christmas. Uh, she just turned one. Oh, nice. So, yeah, so it's always really exciting to see, you know, another addition to the family experiencing this and, you know, hopefully, you know, enjoying herself as she gets older. So, awesome. yeah, that's really, yeah, yeah. Oh, and she's got an uncle like you to introduce her to all the cool pop culture stuff that we talk about. That's right. Yeah, I mean, well, if my sister lets me, because <laughs> she... <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That's funny. Um, Okay, so we are picking up where we left off in October, and we're continuing our primer on introducing someone to horror movies. Now, for new listeners, I'll explain to you what we're doing here. Basically, you're a horror fan. You probably grew up watching horror movies, and you know just how fun the genre can be. Horror is this genre where the goal is to scare the audience in some capacities. And there's so many subgenres of it that there's something for everyone. There's a whole generation that grew up watching horror movies on TV, in the movies, and at the drive-in theater. And in those days, with a handful of TV channels available and no 24-7 movie stations or streaming services, you had to read the TV guide each week to find out when the horror movies would be on. And you watched what was presented. If you missed it, you missed it. And you had to hope the film you wanted to see would get would get rerun at some later point. But we got introduced to horror movies on a regular basis, and with zillions of streaming services today that have pretty much every movie made available, the young folk just don't know where to start. So what we're doing here is giving you handy pointers on where to start in order to introduce younger people to horror. Or it doesn't even have to be a younger person. It could be just anyone who may kind of have an interest in horror but has, doesn't know where to go. Now remember, this is just our recommendation. It, they're not hard and fast rules you must adhere to, but we think this is a great way to start. So class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! 
Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shock class. Whoa, whoa! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shock class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're going to have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play, and have fun now. You know, some people have preconceived notions of horror movies, expecting them all to be gory, nasty, or just too scary, so we've devised a method to slowly get someone to appreciate them. Now, the ideal situation is if you start with a young kid. I started my son at a young age, and now my grandson, who's five, with watching these films, which we've been talking about, the universal horror films, and they're huge fans now. Uh, my son more so because he's 20, uh, but my grandson's really getting into them. And you really can use our method with someone of, of pretty much any age. Now, on today's show, since we don't want to hit like three hours, we're not going to do a <laughs> super deep dive into the making of these films. There's been a ton of analysis and discussion about the making of these films over the years. And I'll try to post some links in, in the show notes where people can find interesting information on them. Yes, and what we decided to do is to... Uh, replicate the way horror movies were shown in the past in movies, in the movies and on television. We're starting by covering the classic universal horror movies. This is the best place to start because these films, by today's standards, are rather tame, but also nonetheless effective and enjoyable. And most of these are black and white. You could easily acclimate a younger person to such films more easily than an older person. But if an older person has any sense of art or appreciation of filmmaking, you could talk them into it. Black and white film was pretty much all they had back then. And if there was color available, it was usually too expensive. Also, black and white makes it easier for filmmakers to play with light and shadows, which helps add atmosphere to really good horror films. We've decided to cover the films in series order instead of release order. So in part one, we discussed Dracula from 1931 and its subsequent sequels. And we discussed The Mummy from 1932, as well as its own sequels. And our third part covered The Invisible Man from 1933 and its four sequels. That's right. And today we are going to discuss the first three Frankenstein films. Frankenstein from 1931, Bride of Frankenstein from 1935, and Son of Frankenstein from 1939. Since there are several more sequels and they tie, tie into the Wolfman films as well, uh, this is going to be part one of our Frankenstein series. And be warned, we're going to spoil the heck out of these films, so make sure you and your loved ones watch them first before listening to our discussion. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. <laughs> to shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. Elizabeth! To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about, 
the spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! Frankenstein begins with Edward Van Sloan stepping from behind a curtain to break the fourth wall and deliver a brief caution to the audience. How do you do? Mr. Carl Lemley feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we've warned you. In a village of the Bavarian Alps, Henry Frankenstein and his assistant Fritz, a hunchback, piece together a human body. Some of the parts are from freshly buried corpses, and some from the bodies of recently hanged criminals. In a laboratory he's built inside a watchtower, Henry desires to create a human, giving this body life through electrical devices. He still needs a brain for his creation. At a nearby school, Henry's former teacher, Dr. Waldman, shows his class the brain of an average human being and the corrupted brain of a criminal for comparison. Henry sends Fritz to steal the healthy brain from Waldman's class. Fritz accidentally drops the jug containing the good brain and so brings Henry the abnormal, uh, I mean the corrupt brain. <laughs> Henry's fiancée, Elizabeth, speaks with her friend Victor about the scientist's peculiar actions and his seclusion. Elizabeth and Victor ask Waldman for help understanding Henry's behavior, and Waldman reveals that he is aware Henry wishes to create life. Concerned for Henry, they arrive at the lab just as he makes his final preparations. A lifeless body is on an operating table. As a storm rages, Henry invites Elizabeth and the others to watch. Henry and Fritz raise the operating table toward an opening at the top of the tower. The creature and Henry's equipment are exposed to the lightning storm and empowered, bringing the creature to life. Frankenstein's monster, despite its grotesque form, seems to be an innocent, childlike creation. Henry welcomes it into his laboratory and asks it to sit, which it does. He opens up the roof, causing the monster to reach out toward the sunlight. Fritz enters with a flaming torch, which frightens the monster. Its fright is mistaken by Henry and Waldman for an attempt to attack them, and it is chained in the dungeon where Fritz antagonizes it with a torch and a whip. Hearing Fritz shriek in the dungeon, Henry and Waldman run down to the room, finding that the monster has strangled and hanged Fritz. The monster lunges at the two, but they lock the creature inside. Realizing the monster must be destroyed, Henry prepares an injection of a powerful drug, and the two conspire to release the monster and inject it as it attacks. When the door is unlocked, the monster lunges at Henry as Waldman injects the drug into the monster's back, causing it to fall to the floor unconscious. Henry collapses from exhaustion, and Elizabeth and Henry's father take him home. Henry's worried about the monster, but Waldman reassures him that he will destroy it. 
While Henry's at home, recovered and preparing for his wedding, Waldman examines the monster. As he prepares to vivisect it, while still alive no less, the monster strangles him. It escapes from the tower and wanders through the landscape, encountering a farmer's young daughter, Maria. She asks him to play a game with her in which they toss flowers into a lake. The monster enjoys the game, but when they run out of flowers, he throws Maria into the lake, where she disappears beneath the surface. The monster runs away, panicking, and he and Elizabeth are to marry as soon as Waldman arrives. Victor rushes in, saying that Waldman has been found strangled. Henry suspects the monster. The monster enters Elizabeth's room, causing her to scream and faint. When the searchers arrive, they find Elizabeth unconscious. The monster has escaped. Maria's father arrives, carrying his drowned daughter's body. He says she was murdered in the village's former search party to capture the monster. During the search, Henry is attacked by the monster. The monster knocks Henry unconscious and carries him to an old windmill. The peasants hear his cries and find the monster has climbed to the top, dragging Henry with him. The monster hurls the scientist to the ground. His fall is broken by the veins of the windmill, saving his life. Some of the villagers bring him home, while the rest of the mob set the windmill ablaze with the monster trapped inside. At Castle Frankenstein, Henry's father celebrates the wedding of his recovered son with a toast to a future grandchild. So I forgot to put in my notes, Chris, but um, what was your first impression of Frankenstein? When did you first see it? I believe I first saw Frankenstein, you know, I want to say that it was on Turner Classic Movies when I was a teenager. I had seen it on there, I think. And I can recall that this one was one of my favorites upon first seeing it of all the universal horror movies. I always liked Dracula, never loved it. This one I always loved, along with The Invisible Man. I've always said I think Frankenstein is probably my second favorite, um, next to Invisible Man as... uh, uh, my favorite uh, universal horror movie. Um, but I can remember first seeing it then, loving it then, and probably loving it even more now upon rewatching it for for the show. One of the things I loved about it is its themes. Now, the thing with universal horror movies I've always loved is there seems to be this, uh, no pun intended, this universal theme <laughs> throughout throughout the series of movies where the main character is somehow playing God in some way, and then that strikes against them. Uh, and it makes for the horror, it makes the horror more interesting, I think, because you have these really tall themes and the monster is the metaphor and the background and the horror is really the background of it all rather than the horror being in the forefront. So I've always found that very interesting and that's truly evident in this movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I wanted to point out too, uh, I think I've mentioned this before in the show, but Gilbert Godfrey on his podcast once said, we said it a couple of times. You know, he feels that with the Universal films, uh, Frankenstein represents birth and, you know, infancy, childhood. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Dracula re- uh, represents, um, oh, I'm sorry, the Wolfman represents, you know, your teenage years, your adolescent years where sure. you know, your body's changing and you can't control your emotions. Um, Dracula sort of represents uh, a man who's grown up, who wants to be suave and debonair that sort of thing. And then the mummy represents old age, where, mm-hmm. you know, you've kind of reached the end of your life. Totally. Um, yeah. And I first saw this probably as a kid on one of the creature features on TV. Um, I always loved it. I It's one of those ones that I, I n- haven't gone back to as much as I should have. And like you said, you know, watching it this time around, you forgot how really awesome this movie is. It, it's so enjoyable, and it just holds up so well, especially on the, the DVD version I watched. It's a nice, clear picture, and you can really see how well-directed it is. How we, and with all three films that we're going to talk about today, they, they're not only well-directed, but 
you know, the atmosphere is just so yes. engaging. Yep. You know? And, of yep. course, this is directed by James Whale. We talked about him because he directed your favorite, The Invisible Man. Mm -hmm. um, he's also directed Bride of Frankenstein, which we'll talk about in a bit, and uh, The Old Dark House, which I think had Gloria Stewart and Boris Karloff in it. Um, you know, he was kind of he kind of had a tortured life that ended in suicide. Um, but rather than dwell on those negative things, I think we should focus on his two films here, which was Crowning Achievements. And these have left an indelible impression on our pop culture that's lasted for almost a hundred years. Absolutely, and well, and one of his gifts, I think, as a director, was his ability to create atmosphere. And the same could be said for also uh, Todd, Todd Browning, who, of course, directed the original Dracula. You know, the, the great thing about these directors, and the same even goes for um, the director of uh, Son of Frankenstein, which we'll get to later, there's so much atmosphere in all these movies. And I feel like James Whale often created the most striking atmosphere in his lighting and his photography. So, very strong director. I'm kind of surprised he didn't do more of the movies in this series. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure what went on there. You and I were talking off mic, and you had some interesting points about his career. Yeah, he. Um, I, in looking at his filmography, I was amazed to see how little movies he directed versus the director of Son of Frankenstein, um, uh, Roland Lee, uh, Roland V. Lee, rather. Uh, his filmography is much more packed, contrast to James Whale, who... I would argue is the more known and legendary director of the two. Uh, but upon looking at the filmography, I was kind of amazed to see the handful of movies that he did that he did make. It's not that he made little movies. He just didn't make uh, a lot, as I expected. I kind of expected to see more in the filmography. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's really too bad, you know, he, he um, his whole life story. And, if, folks, if you get a chance, there's a film. Now, I actually haven't seen it. I don't know if you have, Chris, but it's called Of Gods and Monsters. Have you seen that? I've heard of that one. That's one I've been meaning to see. Um, the one, the the I, for some reason, I always get that movie mixed up with um, uh, Shadow of a Vampire, the one about uh, F. W. Morrow. Oh, right, right. Yeah, that's I the, always get I yeah I always get the two confused. That's the one with Willem Dafoe who plays Max. William Schreck, De, right? William Dafoe, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But th that movie's excellent. I have to see for Gods and Monsters though, because that's one I've been dying to see. Yeah, because it's about James Whale's life story, and Ian McKellen plays him. And I th Interesting. think Brendan Fraser plays his longtime companion in that movie. And it, it, it's yeah. a classic but tragic tale. Sure, uh, yeah. I, I recommend if the audiences, if you want to know more about James Whale, check that out. And I, I probably should, too. Shame on me for not doing that. Mm -hmm. Shame. 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 Um, of course, this film is adapted from uh, the 1816 novel by Mary Shelley, as well as the play which Dracula was also adapted from its novel but and the play, elements of... Because uh, both of these had been plays long before they were, they were films. Hmm. And there's a handful of writers on this, uh, many of whom had a hand also in writing other films like Dracula and the, and the Mummy. We've got Francis Edward Farrago, John L. Balderston, and uh, quite a few others. Then we've got Colin Clive. Well, let's dive into our cast here. We've got Colin yeah. Clive, who plays Henry Frankenstein, who is called Victor in the novel. I don't know why they chose to change that. Do you have any mm. idea? No, unfortunately. And I was actually going to ask you, have you read the novel? Uh, and if you did, did you read the novel before or after seeing the movie? I probably saw the movie first. I think I read the novel in my teen years. Gotcha. And... Yeah, see, I, I haven't read the novel. Um, and that's, some, that's one novel I've been meaning to read. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, in the book, like in this, he's got uh, Dr. Frankenstein has 
um, Fritz, his hunchback yeah. assistant. And um, then I think he has another assistant in the next movie. But um, in the book, he has no assistant. And it, there were, she's a little vague describing how he brings the monster to life. She just sort of describes it as like, um, you know, uh, just a mishmash of science and and chemistry and all this stuff. They, she doesn't really go into detail because, you know, back then they hmm. had even less knowledge of science than we do now. Sure, so I yeah. think that was a smart choice on her part to keep it vague. Mm. But Colin Clive also played, um, he was also in Bride of Frankenstein and Mad Love with Peter Lorre. And mm. he was a real tortured soul. He was a raging alcoholic. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and he, he died of tuberculosis at age 37. But you know what? Oh, it's, wow. it's his famous line, it's alive, it's alive, will just last on forever. You know, everybody oh, without knows it, that line. Without a doubt, yeah. I mean, that's one of those things where you don't have to know what movie it's from. You know exactly what it is. Uh, when someone says it's alive, it's alive, like they know exactly where that comes from. Right. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, in the cast, we also have Mae Clark as Elizabeth uh, Lavanza. Uh, she was in quite a few things, but I think next to her most famous part was uh, in the serial King of the Rocket Man. Yep. Yep. That's right. That's right. And then, of course, the great Boris Karloff as the monster. And if you notice in the opening credits, it says the monster with a question mark. Yes. And, and then at the end, it gives his name, Boris Karloff. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much about this guy that's been written. He's so iconic. We talked about him in The Mummy. Um, up to this point, he had been in 84 films, but was always sort of a character actor or a bit player. And as if I understand it correctly, and you know, folks listening, if I'm wrong, you know, write in and tell us, but I believe that he was just simply eating one day in the studio commissary when James Whale came in and saw him and realized that he was perfect for the part because he was like six foot four or something. That's amazing. I had no idea. And, uh, and and because it's the holiday season right now, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that Boris Kov is, of course, the voice of everyone's favorite uh, curmudgeon, the Grinch. That's and, right. <laughs> yes. Uh, which I actually didn't know that until many years later. Uh, and so I always found that a very fascinating thing Yeah. Uh, to, know, to know about that. You know, I think his daughter in an interview recently said that... Um... That that was one of the things he was most proud of that he had done. Is that right? That's yeah. awesome. That, that that's great. Like many actors, he's he did that because he wanted to do something that his kids could enjoy too. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. That's like one. That's one I go back to watch every every year uh, around the holiday season, just because it's just it's a staple. It's like one you have to watch every year. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then of course also in the cast there's a slew of different character actors from the time, including Edward Van Sloan as Doctor Waldman. And of course, we saw him as Van Helsing in Dracula. Who can yep. forget that? Uh, <laughs> we had, we have uh, John Bowles as Victor Morit Mortiz, Victor Mortiz. Uh, we have Frederick Kerr as Baron Frankenstein. Uh, Dwight Fry as Fritz. We saw him as Rainfield in Dracula, and he was one of my favorite characters in this. I have to say. Yeah. Uh, we have Lionel Belmore as Herr Vogel, the Burgermeister. Uh, Marilyn Harris as Little Maria, probably. Probably my favorite scene in the entire picture. Uh, and then we have Michael Marcus Ludwig, who was Maria's father. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. And, yeah, so this was um, this was your second favorite uh, uh, Universal movie, right, you said? Yeah, yeah. I, I just I love the atmosphere of it. I love the... Um, what I love about this one, I think, as opposed to some of the other ones, is the fact that this is a 
non-human character. I mean, Dracula was also, you could argue, was not a human either, but he looked like a human being. Frankenstein, excuse me, Frankenstein's monster, which is, that's a whole other debate. <laughs> um, uh, Frankenstein's monster, uh, you have a creature who's half human, half monster. And I always found that very, uh, oh, I guess like um, something beautifully tragic about it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's like this this child, you know, uh, Henry Frankenstein brings him into this world and almost immediately rejects and abandons him. Yeah. And I just think that's a great subtext, a great theme in the film, you know. That is that is a great sub. Now that you say that, yeah, it's much like it's much like Doctor Frankenstein had adopted this child, and abandoned this child upon birth, or or even just a parent that gives birth and then you know abandons them. I mean, there's something tragically sad about that, right? Yeah, right. And we we'll get into that in a little bit because I had some thoughts about that. But I liked sure. the opening with Edward Van Sloan. I liked how. Mm-hmm. It looked like a stage pro- play because I think directors like Whale, they all, I mean, keep in mind, folks, this is still at the, you know, infancy of film. We just came out of silent films into the 1930s. And I think directors were used to directing stage plays. So a lot of movies from this era, you'll see, they look like stage plays. They still yeah. kind of frame that way. And this whole, even though this movie kind of, he does take it in a different direction and makes it very, um, like the camera is almost a character in, in the first couple of movies here. Yeah. He, he makes it like starts off, he makes it start off seeming like a stage play. Like, and you, especially if you're in the audience at a movie theater and you're used to going to plays all the time and then you see this and then it gets into this horrific tale and, you know, the camera work starts to change. And I, I just think that that's brilliant, a brilliant way to start the movie. Oh, yeah, it is indeed. I loved as well how it was almost like it was a warning to the viewer as to what's to come. Uh, there was something very cool about that. But again, to, to your point about the whole stage play thing, uh, what's interesting is this movie came, This movie was released in 1931, same year as uh, Dracula and a couple, you know, a couple other Universal horror movies. And the thing was too, all those movies seem to have that. And then this is also in, you know, again, we're in the era. We're two years before movies like King Kong, and we are eight years away from The Wizard of Oz, which to me are two movies that really kind of shaped the language of what cinema would become, the blockbuster, as it were. I, I think of these movies as sort of on the cusp or the precursor to that because uh, now we have franchises everywhere, uh, <laughs> and th- this series started that, I feel like. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And we'll get into it more as the films go on, how you know everyone's talking about, oh, the MCU, the Marvel shared universe, and yes. these people have a shared universe, and that those people have a shared universe. And it's like these guys started that yeah. way back in the 1930s and 40s, you know? Mm-hmm. So one of the things, too, that, uh, as I said earlier, I made the mistake of calling the monster Frankenstein because I think that's a big misconception, and that's a misconception that I had, too, before I really got into uh, films. I used to call the monster just merely Frankenstein, but then someone corrected me one day and said, oh, I think you mean Frankenstein's monster, and I go, I go, what? And they said, yeah, they said, yeah, the name of the doctor is Frankenstein. I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. So then from then on, I remember to call, you know, to, to differentiate that, because I think that's still a misconception that goes on today. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's funny. And, and they actually kind of address that in the next movie that we'll talk about. But I got a funny story for you. So I'm watching this uh, last night with my wife. I, I made her sit down and watch all three films with me. And uh, I guess at the end of this movie, she said, she asked me a question. I can't remember what the question was, but it was basically like, I think we, we had started watching Bride, and she was like asking me a, a, if he's the monster's bride or, or if she's the monster's bride or something. And I said, I said, well, Frankenstein is the name of the doctor. She goes, yeah. what? I'm like, yeah, it's <laughs> the name of the doctor. He, the monster is, the mo- is Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> she well, had no idea. No, and, and it's funny, and we'll get into it a, a little bit later as well when we get into Bride, but um, in my notes for that movie, I actually wrote down, shouldn't this be called Bride of the Monster or Bride of Frankenstein's Monster? Right. But then, but then I remembered that, that, the, that the infamous director, Ed Wood, had made Bride of the Monster yeah. in 1956. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So, of course, we can't uh, not talk about this movie without mentioning, or we can't talk about this movie without not mentioning the makeup artist, Jack Pierce, who was oh, responsible yeah. for, you know, the monster's distinctive look. He went on to do the uh, costumes for several other famous Universal pictures, including, you know, like we talked about already, The Mummy and The Wolfman, which we will talk about in a future episode. Yep. And, and um, he was, and he he inspired some of the great talents that were to come in makeup, including the amazing Rick Baker and, yep. of course, Dick Smith among among many of them. Uh, I think I think Rick Baker had talked about a story that he would he would t- check out books in the library, with uh, I think there was a book by Jack Pierce about makeup, and he would he would study this book cover to cover. There were photos of documentation of Jack Pierce doing the makeup and putting the appliances on. I mean, this was like something new at the time. Yeah, yeah, and um, I didn't get a chance to put it in the notes here, but I, I've some I rem- I remember some things about the makeup. I think the reason they went with the flat top for Frankenstein's head, which is it's sort of iconic now. Like every time someone tries to do a Frankenstein, they can't make him look like the Boris Karloff Frankenstein because Universal sort of holds the copyright on that image. Right. Um, but it had something to do with he sort of inferred. That, well, if this guy is, you know, opening this head up and putting a brain in, having the top of it be flat makes much more sense because it's easier for him to access it. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I do know that Karloff at one point uh, decided to, he had a bridge work um, on his, in his teeth, and he pulled that out, I think, for all three movies. So it gave his cheek that sunken huh. look. Wow. And and they definitely I, I meant to look it up and I, of course I didn't have time but he's got something inside his upper eyelids, uh, yeah, to give it that weird look and I can't imagine how painful that was. Oh yeah, I mean you talk about like um, uh, you talk about Lon uh, Lon Chaney putting hooks in his mouth as well to do like uh, to to do uh, some of his early pictures uh, in the I believe it was like the late teens into the early 20s that he would do things like that would he had like a little makeup kit what he would do that yeah. you think about you think about going from that to something like this the process of makeup in general i mean that's a very labor-intensive um process and many actors they complain about it oh yeah yeah i mean yeah i think that was L- london after midnight was the one where he put the yes given that smile that's right Yep. Kind of a lost film, but then he also did something in Phantom of the Opera. I forget exactly what he did, but he did something to push his nose back to give it that skeleton. That's right. Look. Yep. So, yeah. So, I mean, people talk about suffering for your art. These guys got to get some credit for really. I mean, I believe it was like 
Karloff was in the chair, at least in the first film, for nine hours to get the makeup on. Can you imagine sitting there for nine hours to get makeup on, and then you got to go to work? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, wow. <laughs> that, that, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I certainly wouldn't do it. Yeah, no. Did you notice, too, by the way, uh, getting off the topic of makeup, but when the movie opens mm-hmm. and it has the title card sequence, there's this monster in the background, but it doesn't look anything like the Frankenstein monster. <laughs> oh, I have to look at that again. That's funny. I didn't notice that. Yeah, it's this weird demonic-looking creature with, with um, claws uh, coming yeah. out of its fingers. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> well, and the credits were interesting, too. I mean, as we talked about, I love how Boris Koloff is not credited at first. It's just a question mark. Yeah. For the actor's name. And of course, we talked about James Whale. You know, I noticed his name in there. Yeah, no, I mean, and then looking at the cast, a lot of recognizable names, like we talked about. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And, you know, this movie, like Karloff, like I said, was pretty much an unknown up to this point. And mm-hmm. then this catapulted him into the stratosphere, but he became a superstar. And it was funny because all his years of hard work, and, you know, he could have just said, you know what, screw this. I, I don't. It's not working out for me, and and quit the industry, and he mm. hung in there, and he did it, man. He made it. He became a, a megastar right. pretty much till his death. He was well known worldwide. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I think I feel like when people hear his name, they think of this movie, and rightfully so. Yeah, uh, and his daughter Sarah said recently, uh, I think in the same interview I heard, um, that he never brought his work home with her, so she really didn't know that her father was such a huge star early on. She knew he made movies, and I think eventually she would go to the set with him and stuff, but um, he never talked about it when he was at home. So she had no idea, and I, I think it was at one point she was on an elevator with him, and someone in the elevator recognized him and was talking about how they were a huge fan and stuff. And um, She said people were more respectful back then. They really wouldn't interrupt you or run up to you and demand an autograph that, or a picture sure. or whatever, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, but it's kind of interesting. You know, he was able to sort of separate his work and home life. And, you know, he never did drugs. He never got, you know, into alcohol the way Cheney Jr. did and, you know, Colin Clive. And he didn't do drugs like Lugosi. Bell, or, yeah, I was going to say Bell Lugosi. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So um, he led a, a pretty decent life and, and was very lucky. I think he was very grateful throughout his life to have had such success. Yes, he had an audio, though. That's really cool. Yeah. And um, the first Frankenstein movie, uh, surprisingly, is not this one. It was produced by Thomas Edison in 1910, which there's a picture online. Maybe I can, if I can find it, I'll try to remember to post it in the show notes. But um, uh, then there's also two German films, uh, The Golem in 1914, and The Homunculus in 1916, which dealt kind of with similar themes derived from Jewish folklore. And then, um, you know, this movie, the Hollywood film of Frankenstein, was based as much on The Golem as it was on Shelley's novel. And Mm. The Golem is a really good silent movie if if folks get a chance to see it. Have you seen that one? No, I have not. It's Yeah, it's really good. It's basically this creature that that the Jewish... It comes from Jewish folklore, and... Um, every so often they would be persecuted, so they'd need a protector, and they create this guy out of clay called a golem, and he basically protects the village from bad guys and stuff, and it's, it's pretty neat. That's awesome. Yeah. Huh. So getting into the movie, I have a question. At the very beginning, we see a funeral, and then the, the, the people leave, the ceremony's over, and the gravediggers 
puts the coffin in the ground, and he's about to bury it. And Fritz and Frankenstein are just watching him bury it. They wait for him to finish, and then they go and dig it out, which looks like it took, you know, takes hours to do that. Why do they mm. just knock the guy in the head, take the body, <laughs> <laughs> and leave? It would have saved time. I mean, they could have just filled yeah. in the grave and made him think he was delirious. Right, right. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, man. And um, did you notice on the jars of the brain in the um, the classroom, they mm-hmm. had a type, they had typed labels on them. One said normal, one said abnormal. Sure. Um, but when Dr. Waldman, that, that was when he was presenting them to the class. But when Fritz yeah. goes to see them, the labels are handwritten. Did you notice that? I didn't notice that. All I kept thinking about was young Frankenstein and during <laughs> that scene. Ab- <laughs> you already made, I mean, you already made the joke, but I mean, really though, uh, Abby normal. And, uh, <laughs> I, but then, but it's funny. Upon watching these movies again, I couldn't help but see every single reference that was from Young Frankenstein in this, and and like thinking, okay, so Mel Brooks took a lot from this one, and then took pieces of this one, that took pieces from that one, put them together. Uh, so I could, I just kept thinking of that the whole time watching the movie. But this scene in particular really stood out. <laughs> well, it's funny. My wife doesn't have a lot of retention for movies. Um, she'll watch them and then forget them by the next day. Yeah. But I told her pretty soon we're going to have to watch Young Frankenstein because, while well, it's fresh in her mind, just because she'll get all those jokes now. Right. You know? Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, we have to say, it's Young. It's actually Frankenstein. Excuse me. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if it's Frankenstein, then I'm Igor. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's pronounced Igor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that movie is so great. And, you know, um, one thing, too, um, was that in Young Frankenstein, Mel Brooks, I forget who it was that he spoke to, but he basically encountered this dude that had all of the lab stuff, or at least most of it, from this movie in a storage unit somewhere. And he was able to get that for Young Frankenstein. That's amazing. Yeah, well, I was going to say, one of my favorite things about this movie are... The, uh, is the uh, set design and the cinematography, particularly the laboratory. I love that set. Oh, yeah. And just, I, now, all right, here's a question because I don't know the answer to this, but I'm pretty sure I, I think I'm right. Whenever you saw like the Tesla coils in there and all the lightning and everything, that was real, right? That was all on set. That wasn't added in, right? Yeah, I believe that was on set, yeah, because the only way they could really do that back then was, I believe, like on the set. Uh, certain effects they could certain effects that had to be post processed, uh, such as like oh I don't know like making like making a building uh, bigger that actually was in the set. They would use matte paintings, and I believe we saw a lot of those in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y- you could kind of see that, like especially like the windmill, like the top half of it with the spinning, the, yeah. the whatever you call them, the fan. Um, that was clear. That that's the the one thing I think younger people might. Um, be like, oh, that looks fake, you know, but for its time, it was genius. Yeah, but you know what? I feel like uh, those kind of things where you could tell something is fake, that's part of the charm of it. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And the, the lab is definitely iconic. It's just so awesome. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, you know, like you and I have said, we just, you watch this movie and all you can think about is young Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole time. I mean, just certain scenes. Uh, Really, the whole thing, um, p- particularly because I'm a big Marty Feldman fan. Every time I would see Fritz, I couldn't help but think of Marty Feldman as, you know, as, as uh, Igor. <laughs> and I'm just waiting for Fritz to be like, uh, oh, what hump? 
That's funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that on the other side? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. I saw Lottie, lot of Mar- Lottie. I saw a lot of Marty Feldman movies in the theater. My parents took me to see him. There was um, uh, he was in the movie called The Last Remake of Bo Jest. Yes. And yep. um, there was another one. It's not Holy Moses because that was Dudley Moore. Oh, it, I know, I know. Yeah, in God we trust. In God we trust. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Those two. Those two pictures he actually directed and uh, Ke- uh, Kino Labor. Uh, what's the name of the company? Kino. Uh, Lorber. Yeah. Thank you. They just released uh, Blu-rays of those two movies with commentaries, with uh, you know, uh, transferred from the from the original film prints. I mean, and those two movies have never been uh, on video other than maybe uh, VHS. So wow. it was great. To, yeah. So. Uh, so it was great to see them get this treatment because I think a God we trust, for example, is not to get off topic here. Yeah, I, but I think that I think that movie is a comic masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. Oh, geez, it's been so long since I've seen them. I'm gonna have to get those now. I mean, you got him. You got Andy Kaufman as as like a televangelist uh, that kind of looks like Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and Louise Lester. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I just, I, I know Marty Feldman's not even in this movie, but I did want to mention also that. Uh, yes, um, yes. He was also in a one movie that I used to love um, uh, with Gene Wilder called um, Sherlock Holmes' Smarter, oh, smarter Brother. Smarter Brother. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> oh, my God. And, that, and that's thanks to Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks inspired him to direct. Because of uh, the experience of being a wor- of having written Young Frankenstein. Oh wow! Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and even the same cinematographer, uh, Gerald Hirschfeld. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's a good movie too. You know what's weird? I ha- I was still off on a tangent here, folks. I apologize, but um, you know how Marty Feldman had that? Uh, I don't know what it is, but that condition that made his eyes bulge out. Yeah, it was uh, Graves' disease. What is it? Uh, Graves disease. Oh, it's like okay. A, yeah, it's a thyroid condition. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, that explains it. Because I had a teacher. Um, I went to Catholic high school, and he was a priest, and he had that. He had the exact Marty oh, wow. Feldman eyes. Yeah. So wow. It was kind of you know awkward kind of talking to him up close, but he was a super nice guy. In fact, I think he was. Oh, one of sure. The best yeah, teachers yeah. I ever had. That's so cool. Um, but anyways, getting back to this movie, there are a few scenes that were cut when it was originally released. And then I, I don't know where along the way they got added back in. I'm, I'm going to say it was probably in the 70s or 80s. Um, and one of them was the scene where when, after he, Dr. Frankenstein does the iconic, it's alive, it's alive, he also says, now I know what it's like to be God. And the censors didn't oh, like wow. that. <laughs> they made so them cut see, that out. Now, see, I didn't know that because, again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the theme of these movies, particularly this one, with the character playing God and the horror element being being a background thing, uh, I I didn't know that was a cut scene. Yeah, yeah, it was like you know, it just I think it was considered blasphemous that uh, even a movie character could consider himself God. You know, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And then the other scene uh, that got cut is the little girl getting tossed into the water. If I believe, if I remember this correctly, you didn't actually see him. You saw. Him looking, and there were no more flowers. And then I think they cut to the to a quick shot of like him, uh, her splashing in the water, but his back facing us, so you can't really see her. And then that was it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So the so the scene itself wasn't cut. It was just a, the shots of her being tossed into the water. Is that what it was? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, because this scene was actually my favorite scene in the entire movie. 
still is, because um, I think it's just such a beautiful moment, and it, you know, there's something very tender and sweet about it. But yet, again, kind of tragic as well. You know, he's looking for some form of companionship, which is explored more in the sequel. But this was a great moment. And do you remember the Incredible Hulk pilot? Yes. Oh, yeah, vividly. Yeah, there's a scene where the Incredible Hulk has a very similar encounter in the woods with a little girl, and uh, she somehow ends up in the water, and the Incredible Hulk is trying to save her. The father comes out with a with the with a shotgun, ready to shoot the ready to shoot the creature, uh, and uh, of course that was a nod to uh, Frankenstein. Yeah, and the the creator of the show, Kenneth Johnson, he has in all his work, he's always taking literature. Uh, uh, literature references and all his work, um, and The Incredible Hulk included, and he didn't want to do The Incredible Hulk at first uh, because he thought it was just a silly comic. But then, when he read the novel, I'm sorry, when he read the uh, when he read the script, uh, I'm sorry, he wrote the script. Well, when he thought more about it, he was reading a novel of Les Misérables, and then you know, and thought, oh well, I could take the incred- I could take something as ludicrous as The Incredible Hulk, this comic character. Give it shades of Les Miserables of a character on the run with shades of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and this sort of Frankensteinian kind of creature. I just thought that was always really cool to be able to do that. That's awesome. That's awesome. I never knew that. Although I did, you know, that scene did remind me of Frankenstein. But that's so cool. I didn't know that about Kenneth Johnson. Oh, yeah. No, in all his work, same with V and Alienation and pretty much everything he's done. He's always taken something out of literature because he had a... Uh, training in the theater and uh and you know and that sort of thing so he's always taken from that like you know the sci-fi stuff that he at first was not interested in doing but was able to put his own spin on it and i think that's part of why he had such a successful career as a science fiction uh director filmmaker and and writer that's amazing that's amazing you gave me an idea too i think down the road we should do an episode or two about the incredible hulk series maybe we'll find someone who's like you know, either involved in the series or very knowledgeable about it. Cause, oh, it's a great show, yeah. And it's funny that you brought it up because I was just thinking recently about that opening sequence in the first episode. I mean, the the very, very opening sequence of the very first, the pilot episode, sets the tone for the whole series. Yes. And it's yep. ju- it, it just brings you to tears. It does, yeah. And, like, you know, and again, the... It's funny that Universal had distributed that series because there are certainly very many shades of that sh- of the of the classic Universal horror movies within that show, right. particularly in that particularly in that pilot episode. Uh, actually, a good friend of mine uh, from Jersey, he uh, just for fun, he put the show on one day, and he turned his TV and like he turned his TV to black and white to watch the show in black and white. And was like, wow, this plays so much better because it looks like a universal horror movie. I'm like, oh, I'm like, wow, that's actually a, a kind of a cool idea to do that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's so cool. I think yeah. Universal still owns the rights to the character of the Hulk, which is why we yeah. haven't seen a Hulk movie in quite some time. Sure. Even yeah. though he's been in the Avengers and stuff, there's, they're having rights issues with that. But um, ah. anyways, uh, getting back to Frankenstein. <laughs> Um, I had a funny story. My grandfather, when I was younger, told me that when he was a kid, he saw this when it first came out. And, I, you know, back then, kids just went to the movies by themselves. The parents probably dropped them off or whatever. And um, he's watching it. And the very first scene where Frankenstein appears, he jumped and he grabs the arm of this random lady that's sitting next to him. And she just leans over and she's like, it's okay, honey. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's awesome. Yeah. So when Fritz starts... All right, so this is a scene. So now the monsters come out. He's alive. He's walking around. When Fritz comes in with a friggin' torch and starts putting yeah. the fire in the monster's face, and I'm yelling at the TV now. This is last night. I'm going, <laughs> get that away from him. Yeah. He totally provoked him. They all provoked him. And then they're, they, like, treating they him like he's bad. Yeah, and then Fritz comes back in only to whip him. With, uh, um, uh, you know, starts whipping him. I'm like, I'm like, well, you know, hey, buddy, you know, um, you got what you deserved. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> oh, my God, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it was interesting, too. Another sort of sub-thread throughout this was how um, Henry's obsession with trying to bring a creature to life was, was pretty much driving him insane. Yeah, yeah. Well, and again, too, I mean, uh, I, um, James Well did sort of the same thing with the main character of The Invisible Man. The main character in that, he was also obsessed with, uh, you know, trying to get this experiment right. There seems to be a theme of obsession throughout, throughout these series of movies. Yeah, yep. And, and, and like with that, the invisibility, the power yes. that you have. Yep, the power. You can be yep, invisible yep. drove him insane. Mm-hmm, Totally. Um, and did you notice too? There's no background music throughout this movie. I I did notice. I also noticed that as well in uh, Dracula. There's very little, if at all, music in both of those movies. Uh, in some in some scenes, it works really well. In others, it's dying for music. But I almost kind of like it because it's it's atmospheric. Yeah, I agree. I didn't even really notice till about halfway through, and I turned to my wife. I was like, "Hey, there's no music in this." You know, I noticed it more so when the little girl was tossed into the water. That's when I really noticed that there was no music because I was waiting for some kind of music cue when he's walking away. And I'm like, and I'm like, oh, there's no music. Oh, this is strange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But that scene was, was shot well, and the, it was interesting, too, how... I thought it was interesting how they used a uh, handheld camera. The one and only time in the film, during the scene where the village is celebrating, the camera kind of moves through it, and then it goes, it dissolves into the scene of uh, the monster approaching the little girl, and it was still handheld. And I, I wonder mm. why they chose to do that. Maybe because, like, in the woods it was difficult or because they were outside, not on a soundstage. Yeah, I imagine so. But then at the same time, I also wonder how, because the cameras back then, they were not exactly something you could carry on your shoulders as you can today. So right. I kind of I wonder how it would have that handheld look. It's, you know, it's something to really think about. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. At some point, we'll have to take a dive into that and see if we can find that out. Yeah. Um, but this, again, the, the, the filming of this is so amazing. The shots are so cool. Like, when the monster comes in and scares Elizabeth and she passes out, and then they, the guys come in and find her, that whole framed shot is so beautifully done of her just sort of draped over the bed. Yes. Um, I just love that. Oh, yeah, I do, too. You know, and it's you know, and you kind of forget too that, you know, once they realize, okay, shit, the monster was just here, which I thought he was going to take her captive. I'd forgotten what happened, yeah, um, but he didn't. But um, Colin Clive sort of becomes this action hero because he jumps in, and you know, now he's he's decided, you know, we're going to have to destroy the monster. He joins the angry villagers, and he leads like they break into three parties, and he leads one of them into finding the monster. Yeah, you know, I kind of didn't expect that, you know, because I get, and maybe it's because I had young Frankenstein on my mind. Yeah. But I, I, no, but really, I kind of expected him to take sides of the monster and try to stop the villagers from destroying him. But seeing it this again, ha having not seen it in a long time and seeing it again, it was a surprising turn uh, for me. 
Yeah, I agree. I had the same same reaction to that too. I, yeah. I kind of forgotten and uh, was wow. Oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you know the monster takes him up into the windmill, and I thought the inside you see the inner turnstile turning, and they face off, and you could see. Like, I can't describe it, but it's this round thing spinning that has vertical poles on it at every so many intervals. And so you could see through it as it's spinning. And you see Dr. Frankenstein's eyes as he's looking. And then they cut to the reverse angle from his point of view. And he could see the monster's eyes through the spinning thing. And I oh, really yeah. thought that was cool. That was cool, yeah. The only flaw in, uh, um, you know, in that last scene, though was when Frank when uh, Frankenstein's monster uh, uh, I'm sorry when the monster tosses Frankenstein over the tower I mean that that was just like a bad dummy yeah. <laughs> and then the, <laughs> I I kind of laughed a little bit not going to lie <laughs> yeah I did too yeah <laughs> I I I love those moments in movies where it's clearly a dummy I do flying too. off the cliff I do or too. whatever yep <laughs> <laughs> and did you notice too the angry villagers they were very gleeful about being angry villagers <laughs> <laughs> they really were, yeah, and uh, and and once again, another Universal horror movie where it ends in a large fire. I feel like all these movies end in a large fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like whatever building they're in has to be destroyed by the end. That's right. That yeah, I know. But you know, but did you notice too how this is one of the few of these movies that had very little special effects other than the makeup and maybe like the ending and then Frank and then Frankenstein's monster actually coming to life, like the. To me, this was more of a character study and story-driven than it was effects-driven. Yeah, you know, you're, I, I hadn't actually thought about that, but you're absolutely right. Um, with the exception of, like, some the, the mat shot of the windmill. And sure, maybe, yeah. Oh, you know what, too? They, when they were hunting him, I noticed um, in the background, the sky looked really cool, but you could kind of see ripples. Like, it was a... I don't think it was a matte painting so much as they may have painted a curtain and hung it in the back. Yeah. So you could almost see, not folds, but kind of the bends in the curtain. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, yeah, there really weren't a whole heck of a lot of effects. Um, you know, like we said, we don't really know about the lightning or the, the Tesla coils. I'm pretty sure that was all on set. Oh, yeah. No, I think it was. So, uh, Chris, final thoughts on Frankenstein. I, I mean, it's, uh, again, my second favorite of, of this whole series. Um, I love the themes of it. I love the cast. I love the photography. Um, I feel like it's the movie that people think of when they hear the term universal horror movie. Because along with Dracula, along with Dracula, and I think it's because of that strong image and that look at the monster. It's like when you hear the term universal horror movie, Frankens either Frankenstein or Dracula, they always come to mind. At least for me, they always do. So, yeah, I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I mean, what can I say about this movie that hasn't been said before? This movie is one that's really been analyzed to death. Um, like I said, there's tons of information on the Internet if you want to go in and look at how things were made in this. Um, it's, it's definitely a classic, and I, I feel it's a must-see. I think, um, it, you know, we did talk, we've been talking about the movies sort of in order, um, only f for what makes it easier for us to break them down. But I think if you're going to watch Universal, you know, uh, start with the Universal films. You might want to start with this one and The Invisible Man and then go from there. Uh, you know, it, it just looks good on so many levels. It's so, it's so amazing, you know. And, you know, we talked about the fact that there was no music in this and it you barely notice. Um, you couldn't get away with that today. 
you know? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. But no, I agree. I think starting with this movie, along with Invisible Man, and, and also Dracula, I, I feel like those three are very... Um, are, 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 um, you can't even argue the Wolfman, I suppose. I feel like those four are like... Like, uh, like if you're going to start Universal Horror Movies, you can start with one of those four. And you don't even necessarily have to watch them in order. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Because at that point, there's no continuity. They're just... Yeah, exactly. Know, origin yeah. stories. But... Um, and it's what it's. I was trying to do the math. It's ninety years. This movie's ninety years old this year. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's and, incredible. And it's still popular. When you say Frankenstein to someone that maybe never even saw the movie, the image of Boris Karloff is what they think of. Yep, they think of Boris Karloff, and they think of it's alive, it's alive, and they think of they think of a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, certainly the image of Boris Karloff is certainly up there. So, folks, uh, I I suggest you gather the family and watch this classic. You know, even my wife commented that she thought parts were scary, and she doesn't get scared in movies. And she's like, "Oh my god, that's freaky!" Especially like him throwing the girl into the water, and a yeah. cu- couple of other scenes. She was like surprised at how effective they were. So, mm. all right, folks. So we are going to take a break here, and when we come back, we are going to discuss *Bride of Frankenstein* from 1935. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic monsters, modern talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Monster Kid Radio! This is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't. 
Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Are you a lifelong fan of General Hospital? Are you a new fan who wants to know more about the history of the show? Do you enjoy talking about the show with others? Do you find yourself yelling at the TV? Is your self-care an hour a day in Port Charles? If so, we invite you to join hosts Amanda Kimmel and Shannon Coach at the place where all the hidden conversations take place and secrets are revealed. Meet us at Pier 54, a General Hospital fan podcast. A stormy night, Percy Bysshe Shelley and Lord Byron praise Mary Shelley for her story of Frankenstein and his monster. She reminds them that her intention for writing the novel was to impart a moral lesson, the consequences of a mortal man who tries to play God. Mary says she has more of the story to tell. The scene shifts to the end of the 1931 Frankenstein in 1899. Villagers gathered around the burning windmill cheered the apparent death of the monster. Hans, the father of the girl the creature drowned in the previous film, wants to see the monster's bones. He falls into a flooded pit underneath the mill where the monster, having survived the fire, strangles him, hauling himself from the pit. The monster casts Hans's wife to death. He next encounters Minnie, who flees in terror. The body of Henry Frankenstein, who is thought to have died at the windmill, is returned to his fiancée, Elizabeth, at the ancestral castle home. Minnie arrives to sound the alarm about the monster, but her warning goes unheed. Elizabeth, seeing Henry move, realizes he's still alive. Nursed back to health by Elizabeth, Henry has renounced his creation, but still believes he may be destined to unlock the secret of life and immortality. A hysterical Elizabeth cries that she foresees death. Henry visits the lab of his former mentor, Dr. Satimius Pretorius, where Pretorius shows Henry several homunculi he has created. Pretorius wishes to work with Henry to create a mate for the monster. With the proposed venture involving Pretorius growing an artificial brain while Henry gathers parts for the mate. The monster saves a young shepherdess from drowning. Her screams upon seeing him alert two hunters who shoot and injure the monster. The hunters raise a mob that sets out in pursuit. 
captured and thrust to a pole. The monster is hauled to a dungeon and chained. Left alone, he breaks his chains, overpowers the guards, and escapes into the woods. That night, the monster follows the sound of a violin playing, Ave Maria, and encounters an old blind hermit who thanks God for sending him a friend. He teaches the monster words like friend and good and shares a meal with him. The two hunters stumble upon the cottage and recognize the monster. He attacks them and accidentally burns down the cottage as the hunters get the hermit to safety. Taking refuge from another angry mob in a crypt, the monster spies Pretorius and and his cronies, Carl and Ludwig, breaking open a grave. The henchmen depart as Pretorius stays to enjoy a light supper. The monster approaches Pretorius and learns that Pretorius plans to create a mate for him. Henry and Elizabeth, now married, are visited by Pretorius. When Henry expresses his refusal to assist with Pretorius's plans, Pretorius calls in the monster, who demands Henry's help. Henry again refuses, and Pretorius orders the monster out, secretly signaling him to kidnap Elizabeth. Pretorius guarantees her safety return upon Henry's participation. Henry returns to his tower laboratory, where, despite himself, he grows excited over his work. After being reassured of Elizabeth's safety, Henry completes the bride's body. A storm rages as final preparations are made to bring the bride to life. Her bandage-wrapped body is raised through the roof where electricity is harnessed from lightning to animate her. Henry and Pretorius lower her, and after realizing their success in bringing her to life, remove her bandages and help her stand. The monster comes down the steps after killing Carl on the rooftop and sees his mate. The excited monster reaches out and asks her, Friend? The bride, screaming, rejects him. The dejected monster absorbs. She hate me, like others. As Elizabeth races to Henry's side, the monster rampages through the laboratory. Where Pretorius warns that the monster's actions are about to destroy them all, the monster pauses and tells Henry and Elizabeth, Go, you live, go. To Pretorius and the bride, he says, you stay, we belong dead. While Henry and Elizabeth flee, the monster looks at the bride, sheds a tear, and pulls the lever to trigger the laboratory and the tower's destruction. So, Rigor, what did you think of The Bride of Frankenstein? I really, I really love this movie. This is one of those movies I had seen several times over the years, and I didn't quite get it until this viewing. I didn't understand the thing about the, the little people what Praetorius was up to and, and really what his involvement is. And I, I guess the, the onus is on me for not actually paying attention because uh, it was this time around where they explained, like, he grew them. He grew them out of organic materials. He grew the brain. They didn't steal a brain for her body. He grew mm. it. And I guess for some reason over the last, you know, five decades, I never got that fact until yesterday. So now I understand it more, and I really, really enjoyed this movie more. Um, in fact, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I've heard on shows and podcasts, and I've read online where people kind of say, oh, this one is actually probably better than the first one. And now I kind of understand that point of view, and I, I almost agree with it. I think this one, like, it's sort of like superhero films. You know, you, yeah. the first one's the origin story. So you kind of bog down with exposition and stuff like that. But this one, it... Um, 
it, it starts off with a quick recap of the first one, and then it hits the ground running. I mean, right off the bat, the monster kills someone, and it doesn't let go of the audience until the end of the movie. And so I, I really enjoy this movie. I have a lot more respect for it than I used to, and I, I definitely think uh, people should check this one out, too, because it's a good companion piece to the first one. Oh, yeah, for sure, and uh, I definitely agree. I I can't remember I can't remember when I first saw this one, but uh, seeing this again for the show, I have to agree. It's it's a very 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 good movie. Pretty much, I would say it's on par with the original. Maybe better in some areas, but I really really enjoyed this one. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's funny. I can tell you where I first saw it, and I remember um, I I was probably seven, so it was somewhere around 1977. In fact. I did find the TV Guide listing for it, and it may be on our uh, Retro TV Guide uh, scans page on Facebook. Um, I was in the living room with my parents. My mother's on the couch. My father's on a, you know, um, uh, a recliner, and they both fell asleep. And I'm watching this movie by myself, and I was getting scared. And by the end of the movie, I climbed up on my father, and I was trying to wake him up, and he wouldn't wake up. And I'll never forget that, that final scene of him pulling the, the lever as they called it, or the lever. Right. <laughs> and my wife goes, what's a lever? I'm like, you heard of a lever? <laughs> Same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, you know, we belong dead, and then he pulls it. It's, I'll never forget that. That was just so, for me, that's just burned in my brain. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, as it was for me, too. I mean, again, I think this movie takes a deeper dive into the themes of the original movie, only this time it adds that layer of, you know, there's a clear theme of loneliness here that is very evident, and in some ways, kind of a kind of a sad story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a, you know, he not only is he rejected by his father in the first one, then he's rejected by this girl in the second one. I mean, yeah. it's like, dude, there's other fish in the sea, but okay. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what's all up? Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting too, you know, because um, halfway through the first film, uh, Henry overcomes his his obsession. And it's kind of like, you know what? Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. I screwed up. All right, we got to destroy him. And in this one, he starts to get obsessed a little bit again, but then he kind of backs off again. And I think it's I think that's why they introduced Pretorius in this because he's the one that's obsessed. I mean, he's yeah. already mad, I think, to begin with. You know, crazy. Um, so I, and he's not as nutty crazy as Henry Frankenstein was in the first one. So I think you needed that. You needed someone to be obsessed with the science. And he had approached the same thing, albeit a different way, by, by growing things in a lab rather than taking dead body parts and putting them together. So his thought was, if we can combine our forces, we could make something even better. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yep. And, uh, you know, there's some really, really good scenes of this. I mean, we'll get to most of them later, but yeah. I mean, my favorite is the scene with the blind hermit. I mean, it's just such a, it, it, it's, it's both funny, it's touching, it's uh, beautiful. And of course we can't help but think of Gene Hackman and uh, young <laughs> Frankenstein. Uh, but, uh, but again, I mean, it works. It works beautifully in this movie. Yeah, it does. It does. And it is a very touching scene, too. And yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Let's just talk a little bit again about the, the cast and crew. Uh, of course, once again, directed by James Whale, based on Mary Shelley's novel, which I guess this, this whole story was sort of a subplot in the first novel, or in the novel. There's no mm -hmm. other ones. Um, also written by William Hurlbut. <laughs> Hurlbut. 
and John L. Balderston, who also had their hands in a lot of the other Universal horrors. Well, and of course, the cast. Uh, we have uh, Boris Karloff as the monster. He's billed merely as Karloff. He returns here, so that's nice. Yep, and Colin Clive again returns as Henry Frankenstein. Mm-hmm, and Valerie Hobson as Elizabeth Frankenstein. She's a recast from the original actress from the first movie. Right. And Ernest Thysiger plays Dr. Pretorius, and he's another—he's a guy who played a lot of quirky characters. He was in quite a few movies. Um, most notably, I wanted to mention that he was in The Ghoul with Boris Karloff, as well as The Old Dark House, another James Whale film with Boris Karloff and Gloria Stewart. Um, I guess Universal wanted Claude Rains to play this character, and James Whale insisted on Thysiger, and I think that was a good decision. I think it was a good decision, too, although I think Claude Rains would have done... A tremendous job in this role, uh, but uh, I, I liked I liked how uh, I liked how the characters played in this. Yeah, I wanted. I was thinking about that after you know when I read that that, that they wanted him. I I feel like Thysiger had this sort of um, evil twinkle in his eye in this movie, and he was kind of unpredictable. Like you didn't know. I think Claude right. Rains is too much of a personality. I think That's he, true. he would have overshadowed Colin Clive in this, whereas... That's true. Yeah, yep. Thysiger was more subdued, but menacing. Like, you didn't know what he was up to. He had some sinister plan, and we'll, we'll never know what that was. Right, right. Uh, and then we also have uh, Elsa uh, Lanchester as Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley and the Monster's Bride. She acted up until 1980 and was in Murder by Death, Witness for Prosecution, and Mary Poppins, among many others. She was great in this, I have to say, uh, even though she was only on screen for a short time. Yeah, yeah, she was. There was someone else I heard in an interview recently where he met her uh, in her older age, and she taught him how to do the hiss that she does in the movie. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I couldn't believe I was with Elsa Lanchester. We were hissing for 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, man. And then we've got... Uh, uh, the rest of the cast are Gavin Gordon as Lord Byron, Douglas Walton played Percy Bysshe Shelley, Una O'Connor as Minnie. I can't stand her. I, <laughs> she, she was in The Invisible Man, right? Doing that screaming. Was she? I believe she was. I, I have to go back to my I'm pretty sure she Wait was. a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Wasn't she like the landlord in The Invisible Man? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's who she was. Oh, yep. Bunch of trousers running around on the That's the one. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. She was she was funny in that. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was annoying in this one. Oh my god. Yeah. It's no wonder nobody believed her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just to round out the cast, we also had E. E. Clive as the Burgermaster. Burgermeister, Meister Burger. That's all I could think of. <laughs> um, Lucian Privil was Frankenstein's butler, who I liked his character. I felt bad when he got killed. Yeah. Um. O.P. Heggie as the Hermit. Dwight Fry reappeared as Carl, uh, one of Pretorius's henchmen. Um, Ted Billings was also Ludwig, his other henchman. Um, Reginald Barlow played Hans. He was the father of the girl, Maria. And I think he reprised his role from the first one, right? Right? Uh, oh, wait. No, I'm confusing. No, wait. No, I, that's not, I'm not confusing. No, no. No, no, you're right. Yeah. yeah. And then Mary Gordon came back as his wife. Anne Darling played the shepherdess. Anne Darling, come in here. Uh, Jay Gunnis Davis was <laughs> Uncle Glutz. Oh, and a couple of uncredited roles. Now, I'm going to mention this first one. Walter Brennan, he played uh, a peasant. He was uncredited. He's famous for, you You may or may not know him, um, he was on a show called The Real McCoys. 
and uh, oh. well-known actor. I know people that have talked about him, uh, you know, far outside of this movie because this was just a bit part. Um, but he had a long career. And did you recognize John Carradine when he came into the Hermit's house? No, actually. Now I have to look again. <laughs> yeah, the two the two <laughs> hunters. I think they're lost or something, and they show up. And they're asking for directions and then see the monster. And he's the first one that speaks. And as soon as he spoke, I went, wait a minute, that's John Carradine. And then he walked in and they did a close-up of his face. And he yeah. was so young here. Wow. Yeah, I'll have to look again. That's, that's interesting. Um, we wow. saw him previously as Dracula in, uh, not Son of Dracula, because that was Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah, no, that was, uh, I think it was House of Dracula, House right? House of Dracula, yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Oh man! So a, a good cast overall, and uh, you know, good good combination. I think they they started production pretty quickly after the first one. So yeah, I mean, although this movie came out in thirty five, I want to yeah, yeah thirty five, whereas the original was thirty one. So I yeah, it, it so I, I have to wonder what went on between that period for it to uh, come out four years later. Right, right. I don't know. I I know they were at least thinking about doing the sequel right after because the first one right. was so successful. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I have to say, you know, I love how I love how in this one keeps it keeps it in the same style uh, as the first movie with the with the bride being uncredited with a question mark, both in the beginning credits and in the end credits. Right. That's right. Because they have Elsa Lanchester listed as uh, Mary Shelley. Yeah, exactly. And and of course, Karloff is listed. By that, everyone knew who everyone knew who he was. So yeah, naturally, yeah. yeah. And it's funny, too, I believe that whole opening sequence is based on what really happened. My understanding, and I heard this a long time ago, but my understanding is that her and her husband, Percy, and uh, the other guy there, the three of them were hanging around one night. It was, uh, no pun intended, it was a dark and stormy night, and they were telling each other ghost stories, and she told them her concept of this story called Frankenstein, and the two guys loved it so much, they're like, you know... Babe, you got to write that down. You got to write, put that into a book. <laughs> That's really see. I didn't know that. That's really cool. How uh, I like. Yeah, that was one of the things I did like about the opening. I like how they took elements of reality, mixed it with the fictional, and put the two together. Yeah, yeah, that and, was really cool. And it was a great way of not copying themselves from the original, where you had Edward Van Sloan come out on stage. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think the only thing about the opening, I, for me, it took a little bit of time to warm up to because, you know, we're seeing the flashback of the of the original movie, getting that little bit of exposition. But once it gets past that, it gets it, it, it picks up really quickly. It gets good really, really quickly. Yeah, yeah. So, and, you know, like I said, I was I finally understood this movie this time around. It made, yeah. I, I could think of, all I could think of is Bill and Ted going, that conversation made more sense this time. <laughs> but there's finally background music in this one. There is. I noticed that right away. Yeah. And um, you know, we hit like I said, we hit the ground running with the monster kills right away, he kills that dude and kills his wife. Just tosses right. her down into the to the pit. Right, right. <laughs> now, uh one thing I did learn recently, this film came under fire from the Hayes Office of Film Standards, which I think I think when the first one, when Dracula and Frankenstein were made in 31, there was no um, movie code. And then something, mm-hmm. uh, there was a guy named Hayes, and he created this thing called the Hayes Code, which basically is sort of now it's the MPAA. Sure. And they basically tell movies, that, oh, you can and can't have that kind of stuff in your movies. And so this movie um, hit a lot of these things that they didn't like. 
you know, they insisted a, a less revealing costume for the bride. Um, they wanted a, a reduced number of murders depicted. And they wanted the scene in which the monster attempts to rescue a figure of Christ on the cross. Um, they wanted that removed. And, mm. you know, I guess censors in other countries took issue with the scene where the monster looks lovingly upon the body of the theretofore unanimated mate. He's kind of leering at her. Yeah. They thought that was um, creepy. It might endorse necrophilia. Um, yeah. And, you know, from an artistic perspective, Karloff objected to having the monster speak in the sequel, which I thought was odd. Um, but he felt it, it, it harmed the poignancy of the character. So I don't know. What do hmm. you think about that? You know, it's interesting when when the monster was talking full words and in some cases full sentences, it was a little off-putting at first because I felt the character was more tragic and was uh, more poignant by not speaking, uh, at least not in words, but with just growls and such and all that. But I don't know. I mean, I think I think in this way, I think in this movie it works because... I saw this mo- so in the first movie he's a child. In this movie, you could argue that he's maybe a toddler, like a not a toddler, maybe like a maybe like a two year old or a three year old or something like that, who is speaking, learning words, and you know, and uh, developing feelings and emotions. Or you know, you can even argue you can even argue um, growing into himself as though just like how we talked about in the Wolfman, the body changing and that sort of thing. So. Yeah. I think it, I, I get, I would, un, I do understand Karloff's argument, but at the same time, I think, I think the character needed to grow, and this was the chance of growth in expressing words and emotions. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think, um, I like the fact that he spoke in this. Um, I always thought he spoke in the first one, and he didn't. It was this one. No. I kind yeah. of, a part of me kind of blended these two movies together, and it might be the fault of Young Frankenstein. Because, oh, it definitely is. Yeah. yeah because. <laughs> No, it definitely because let me tell you, in the first movie, I was expecting him to meet the blind hermit. I was expecting him to be like friend, friend, yeah. as he does. But then I see it in this movie. I'm like, I'm like, oh, it's this one, okay. Uh, you know, and it was upon watching it again that I realized where Mel Brooks took elements of these first three movies that we're looking at today. Because really, it's these first three movies. I think he borrows a lot of uh, for Young Frankenstein. Oh, yeah, yeah, and it, it's funny because even now, just sitting here reading the notes uh, uh, when you were talking, um, listening, I'm thinking, wait a minute, did I screw this up? Wait, did he speak <laughs> in this one? Or... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Couldn't remember, and, um, you know, it, I kind of liken it to, like, I don't mind his speaking in this at all. I think it really works no. with the yeah. growth of the character, like you said. Yeah. Um, and it makes me think of, and on a slight tangent here, in the movie RoboCop, um, yes, the movie works from beginning to end, um, but I, I have a hard time with the sequels and the TV show and the cartoon with RoboCop saying any other dialogue than he says in the first movie. Yes. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Because <laughs> no, no, it does. Hang up. No, 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 it does, and I agree with you because um, the thing about the RoboCop sequels is that like, it's not as it doesn't quite have the same uh, basis of story that the first movie had because the first movie really took a deeper dive into the character of who RoboCop was as a human being and now as a machine. The sequels didn't really quite do that. Here, they do. And, and, and you know, it, uh, that's what makes it all the more fascinating, I feel like. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this movie is, is just way more fast-paced than the first one, even though the first one was entertaining from beginning to end. Yeah, definitely. You know. Well, it's also, well, it's also too, that this movie, and the, this movie and the first movie, they're both roughly the same length. I think the first movie was like an hour and ten minutes. This one was like an hour and 15 or something like that. Yeah. Uh, most of these Universal movies were, uh, at the time, they were like a little, a little over an hour, if at all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the first one was an hour and six... This was an hour and 14, and then I think the mm-hmm. second one was an hour and 40 or an hour and 30 now. I mean, the third one was so, an hour and... Son of Ferguson? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah like an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. yeah. So, and it's interesting, too, how they opened it where I got confused watching it this time around. I was like, because the first one, I'm like, oh, he's dead. And then they carried him away, and he was back in his bed. And I'm like, oh, he's not dead. Then at the beginning yeah. of this one, he's dead. I'm like, oh, he's dead? I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. What? Are they contradicting the first one? But then it, they sort of did a time shift, and they showed us a scene that basically takes place during the last scene of the first movie or just before the last scene of the first movie that we didn't actually see of them right. pulling him out of the windmill, bringing him home, realizing he's dead because nobody bothered to check a pulse, I guess. <laughs> we didn't know about that back then or something. <laughs> Can you imagine how many people got buried because, oh, he's dead, and he wakes up going, shit, I'm not dead, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, just a bunch of living zombies just walking around. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, we did a series on zombies earlier this year, or well, in October of this year, and a couple of times it was mentioned that uh, people considered the Frankenstein monster to be a zombie. Do you agree or disagree with that? Hmm. You know, that's a really good question. In some respects, I do. Yeah. I mean... It's it, not your traditional zombie movie, of course, because of course that definition of what is a zombie movie came much later. But um, yeah, I def- I think I would agree with that that this that you could call this a zombie movie. What do you think? I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence about that. I mean, okay, he's a reanimated corpse. You know, he's reanimated from parts of corpses brought together or sewn together. So I guess in that respect, that yeah. He is yeah. some kind of a zombie, but I think he's a totally different being. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel, too. I think the thing of it, too, is, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like zombies, they usually come about because of unfortunate circumstances, such as uh, some kind of disease or epidemic, uh, whereas, Frank, whereas, Frank, whereas the monster is brought to life purposefully, by reanimation and by and by the nature and by and by, I guess by Mother Nature with lightning, so I'm not so yeah, the monster I feel like is man-made, whereas zombies are not man-made. That's how I would differentiate it. Yeah, yeah. So, I I, I think he's his own entity. He's you know, there's nothing else like him in the world. Yeah, and exactly. It's interesting to 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 speak to your point that we were talking about him speaking earlier. Uh, I w- just remembered that um, in the book, he does talk. Really? Yeah, and I think it okay. is after meeting the hermit. The hermit does teach him how to speak. I think right. it's a little more in-depth in the book. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it reminds me of... Now, I know this is a movie that's got you know Kong-sized plot holes, but it's one of my guilty pleasures is Van Helsing with Hugh Jackman. Mm, yeah. Where the Frankenstein monster in that does talk, and the actor they picked to play that play the monster... It was like an operatic kind of guy, so I thought he did a great job. You know, he yeah. like there's a scene where he goes, um, "What do you want?" and 
the monster goes, what do I want? To live, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, also in the TV show, if you've ever seen Penny Dreadful, have you ever seen that? No. Oh, so good. So good. Is I, it? Nice. I think the third or fourth season uh, just recently dropped on, like, Netflix or something. It's got um, Timothy Dalton and uh, who's the kid that played? Uh, he was in, oh, my God, my brain's fried. He was in Pearl Harbor, and he played Jamie Lee Curtis's son in Halloween H2O. Uh, I can see his face. I got to look it up. But anyways, he plays <laughs> you know, a, wolf, a werewolf in that. And anyways, it's, it's all the, the classic characters brought together. But the Frankenstein monster yep. in that speaks quite a bit, and he's very eloquent. Interesting. But he's, Interesting. you know, this sad, depressed kind of character. And I think that goes in line with this movie, where now, you know, mm-hmm. he's rejected yet again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting subplot, too, or subtext, where he's continuing to find this rejection mm-hmm. throughout. Like, everyone sees him, they go, oh, it's the monster, and they try to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> he never really yeah. gets the chance. And then every time he sees his reflection, he flips out. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, and, and, and you know, and, and, and there again, there's a, uh, you know, of course, at the end where, where he meets his mate, she rejects him. It's like it's like oh shit, you know. It's like it's like it's like it's like Ronnie Dangerfield. It's like it's like oh, I got no respect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you were literally made for me, and you rejected me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, I thought it was interesting too. How Henry starts to obsess again a little bit, um, and then I didn't quite understand the scene where Elizabeth started to go nutty, and then once Pretorius shows up, she kind of overcomes it. <laughs> mm, yeah, no, I I didn't understand that either. <laughs> But you can see when Pretorius shows him his creations, Henry is clearly unnerved by them. Yeah. You know, it, that whole scene. All right, for those who haven't watched the movie yet, and if you have, the movie's 90 years old. Can You know, go watch it and come <laughs> back. Um, he pulls these little, uh, for lack of a better term, jars out of his uh, briefcase, we'll say, or this, this container. And there's these glass tubes, and inside them are these tiny little people. There's a king and a queen and a ballerina. And they're, the whole sequence was just, I That felt, was strange. Yeah, well, beyond strange, it was a little unnerving that he's got these yeah. miniature people that he's somehow grown in a lab, and he just keeps them in a glass jar. It's like, yeah, what, what kind I, of life do they have? Yeah, and like I had to do a double take. I was like, I was like, am I watching the same movie as I thought I was watching? This it seemed like some kind of a totally different movie. <laughs> yeah, it definitely did. And I think yeah. that was something that maybe the first few times I watched this film over the decades, it, um, I, I was so focused on that that I didn't actually hear what he said about growing them. Right. Um, I could have sworn too, and now this might be a Mandela effect, but I could have sworn at one point he pulled out an elephant. A tiny little elephant. Am mm. I? Do you remember that at all? I don't. No, I just remember the tiny human beings. Hmm. Maybe that was from another movie or something. I don't know. It was weird. But that yeah. whole scene moving forward, where where the monster encounters the shepherdess, that was tense because you knew she wasn't lost yeah. in this world. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and then they've got him tied to the pole, and that right there, I just look at my wife. I'm like, look at it's it's you know Christ-like symbolism. He's crucified right there. Oh sure, yeah. That was just so obvious. There's a lot of that in this movie, and I, I know that yeah. there's there's a lot of talk about you know James Whale, what he put into this movie. And I shame on me, I didn't get a chance to um to listen to the director's commentaries on either one. So or not director's mm-hmm. commentary, but there's commentary on the films. Yeah.
Shame. 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 Nice. Um, but that was a cool shot. And then the other cool shot, which I believe you can get as like a statue or a model, is him, the monster, when he's chained to the chair. Chained to the chair, right. Yeah. That yeah. just looked so cool. I mean, this, this whole movie, I think, in terms of cool shots, tops the first one. Would you agree? I would definitely agree with that. I also noticed, too, that the camera seemed to move more in this one. Noticed a lot of uh, dolly pushing shots and, you know, dollying back. Uh, very little of that is in the first movie. Like, you could tell, you could tell James Wells, the director, was finding more of his visual language as a filmmaker. Yes. Yeah. I agree. And um, so, of course, you know, the scene with the blind hermit, all I could hear was Gene Hackman's <laughs> voice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, man, the poor guy. You know, he just sits around playing the violin, and then, oh, a friend shows up, and he's like, oh, thank yep. God, I got a friend. And then they fucking burn his house down. <laughs> yeah. And all they have is a piece of bread. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. But it was interesting. And he, and, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, I love when he uh, teaches him that smoke is okay, smoke is good. Yeah. <laughs> to, to have a cigar. <laughs> and he kind of, at that point, um, I think... I could be wrong, but I felt like he helped the creature overcome its fear of fire. Yes, for sure. You know, he's like, no, 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 fire is good. You just got to kind of control it, and then it's well, because well, well, because if you notice at the end of the movie when there is a fire, surprise, uh, yeah. <laughs> he uh, he he does he doesn't have the same reaction. He's a braver he's a braver being. Yes, yes, yeah. which is another thing. He's grown. The monster has grown as a character throughout this yeah. film. Mm -hmm. So that was great. And did you notice the very first scene uh, with the hermit, at the end of that scene, it fades out, and the fade goes down slow, but then there's like a cross on the wall, and the cross doesn't fade for a little bit, and then it fades? I'll have to look at that again. That's interesting. Yeah. I want to know how they did that, because that's definitely a special effect right there, but it was well yeah, done. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, um, you know, there's a lot. This That whole sequence is just... It, I almost feel like, now that I think about it, I almost feel like that James Whale took all the different segments and they were sort of these little, not microcosms, but he just sort of focused on them individually. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like okay, this whole yeah. scene is different from the rest of the film and every scene is different from each other. Like, it, th But there's a clear... Um, there's a clear directorial path in each scene that he sort of sat down and mapped out how each scene's going to look. And it wasn't... It, they, yeah, he had this overall picture of the movie, and that's why they all kind of work together seamlessly. But each mm -hmm. one is, is... I mean, there's a whole different set. It's a whole different... You know, there's different characters. You know, am I making yeah. sense here? I don't know. <laughs> I think I'm just no, 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 you, no, 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 you aren't. Actually, what I was going to say... One of, one of the things I wrote down was I was kind of surprised by a short length, uh, mostly because the plot itself of The Bride doesn't really kick in until about 45 minutes in. And again, this movie is only an hour and 15. So that's like a, that's like roughly a half an hour of, of plot. The rest of the movie, it's not that it doesn't have a story. It's just sort of... And I don't want to say meanders either because it doesn't meander. Like everything connects right. by, the end of the, by the end of it. But we don't really see the bride until maybe 45, 50 minutes in. Uh, but yeah, it does feel very uh, segment-like uh, throughout. Not doesn't and doesn't and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. No, I agree. I agree. It's I I feel like there was just care, individual care taken to the individual scenes. Yeah, 
It does. You know, and the, the, right after the, the poor, <laughs> they burned down the poor blind man's house, the monster's running through the graveyard. And I think that's my favorite scene of the whole movie because... That, that, is, a, that is a great scene. Oh, yep. Man. Just the statues and the fog. Yep. And, you know, he runs up and knocks over the statue. I thought he was going to then turn and run over the giant, and knock over the giant crucifix. That's what I thought too, but no, no, he just he just digs right in and he just like goes right beneath the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, so there's this whole labyrinth under the underground of this like, uh, what, like a mausoleum kind of thing or. Oh yeah, yep. That was bizarre. That was bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> so meanwhile, up above, they're digging six foot holes and putting coffins in, and then below it is. A whole other crypt, I guess. Crypt is probably a better word. Yeah. But yeah, that, that that's a scene. Like, I'd love to take a screenshot of that and use it as a backdrop, backdrop on my computer, you know? Yeah. But uh, Pretorius's lackey, Carl, he, he was a freaky dude. He was, yeah. He, he just had this creepy vibe about him. Like, he looked like a, a perv, but then he's getting creeped out by the stuff that was going on. Oh yeah, no, totally. <laughs> I, I I guess you could say he was like this movie's uh, Fritz, as it were. Yes, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Did you notice too? Towards the end, now they're getting the the body ready to bring it to mm-hmm. life, and Henry Pretorius and Carl—they've all got those like doctor smocks on, whatever you call them. They had blood mm-hmm. all over them. Did you notice that? Really? No, I didn't notice that. I think because it was black and white, you couldn't right. really tell. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, I think that worked. But but then at one point they communicate on wireless phones. What the heck was up with that? <laughs> I know, I know. I, I look at that and I'm just like, oh, th- so this is happening? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that was really weird. I was like, I was looking for wires. I'm like, well, maybe they just you know plug it into the wall. There's a jack you know downstairs and there's a jack upstairs, but there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, there wasn't. <laughs> so, so folks, we see uh, a, a wireless phone, what, uh, 60 years before. Yep, 1939. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, 1935. Yeah. 35, yeah. Oh, man. But um, one thing, too, I liked about that whole sequence where they're preparing to animate the bride, uh, they were all Dutch, Dutch angles. I did notice that. Yeah, those were great shots. And, you know, that comes from uh, classic German expressionism. Uh, and cinematography. I mean, that yeah. comes from all of that, and it's it's beautiful, beautiful to look at. Uh, but it's funny in that scene, they and if they reanimate the bride, yeah, the bride awakens. You know, they say, oh, they say, oh, they say, oh, she's alive, she's alive, and then you hear Pretorius say, Frankenstein's uh, uh, fr- the bride, the bride of Frankenstein. Then at that moment, that's when I that's when I was asking myself, shouldn't this be called Bride of the Monster or Bride right. of Frankenstein's Monster? Because <laughs> Because then, because that would mean that would mean that, that the mate is being married to Doctor Frankenstein. I'm like, I'm like, okay, that's a little confusing. <laughs> right, right. I think there's a lot to that line. This it was first of all somehow they got to squeeze the title of the film into the movie. Every of movie pretty of much does it, like 99 percent of movies. Um, sure. But also, I think because that was a point that my wife was asking about too. Was wait a minute, is she? she that's where her confusion lied. With the Bride of Frankenstein, because Frankenstein's the doctor, not the monster. Right. Um, so I think, I think Pretorius said that as a joke, because, yeah. you know, essentially Frankenstein had the, the, a bigger hand in creating that, creating her, and so he kind of jokingly says, "It's his bride," mm, as opposed to the monster's bride. Although I have a feeling that that scene 
is what led leads to a lot of confusion and people down yeah. through the ages thinking that the monster's called Frankenstein. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and that makes perfect sense because upon what because upon watching it this time around, my first thought was not that he was joking. My first thought was, oh, they're just trying to squeeze a title in there somehow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but which I mean, they probably were to be fair. Oh but yeah. I I could see where the I could see where that stemmed the confusion over the generations as to who was the monster and who was uh, and who was the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just interesting that they chose to do that. And also uh, I meant to mention, uh, I meant to put it in the notes. I forgot to, but um, there's two shots in the whole reanimation sequence. I mean, first of all, the whole sequence was just beautifully shot, um, yes. but there's a close up of Dr. Frankenstein and there's a close up of Dr. Pretorius so separately. Yeah. And they just mm-hmm. look so cool. Like I, I definitely, I, I may try to take screenshots of those, and um, add them to the to the show notes because those were yeah. really cool. But did you realize that this movie was uh, Whale intended this to be a comedy? No, I had no idea. I, about halfway through, I'm laughing, and then I realized I'm like, wait a minute, this is more funny than scary. Although there was a lot of scary moments in this movie, and yeah. I seem to recall people talking about it or reading about people, you know, discussing over the years that this was actually, he basically made a comedy here. And when you go back and watch it again with that in mind, it actually works, you know? Yeah, well, well, now that you say that, I could sort of see it, particularly, again, the scene with the, uh, uh, with the people in the jars, there's something strangely comedic about that. And, and I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be laughing or if I was supposed to be taken aback or both. But I think something about that was intended to be comedic. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. I agree. I, I meant to mention that that scene too. It's like, it's just oddly comedic. It's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, comedic is how strange it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but but again, I also I also wonder looking at that how they how they achieved that technique. I mean, there had to have been some, uh, you know, some 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 really big set pieces to make them look smaller. I'm sure there must have been some forced perspective play going on, you know, where the actors are further away or closer to the lens and all that, you know, or the set is re- something like that. I felt that but, I felt they were matted in. That they, yeah, they were yep. shot separately mm-hmm. and then, you know, you just pull the camera back and they look Exactly. Tiny. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and again, I thought what was cool about the ending was I thought it was interesting how she was scared of the monster. You know, and then and again the ending was really nice the way he pulls the lever. <laughs> <laughs> And all that, but my question was, how did how did how did Dr. Frankenstein and Elizabeth make it out so quickly out of that tower? That thing was huge, and they got out so quickly. I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I know, I know. But then, you know, before you even ask that question, it's like, why is there a lever that would destroy the castle of the tower to begin with? <laughs> that is true. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Exactly. And that, but then you know something. Then the movie just kind of ends. I, it felt somewhat anticlimactic. Like yeah. I'm like I, I I was expecting the bride to be in the movie a lot more than she was, uh, and I and I know that it was the same actress I was playing Mary, um, playing Mary Shelley. Yeah. But I I don't know for some reason I thought the bride was going to be much more, much uh, was going to be much more part of the plot than she actually was. Well, considering it's the name of the movie, you would have yeah, expected. That's what, that. Yeah, it, it, exactly. I think that's why, that that's why it left me feeling a little like. Not disappointed, but a little bit like, oh, that's it. 
still a great, still a great movie. And you know, it's uh, it's been a long time since I've read the book, but um, the to the point of her being the bride of Frankenstein, um, I'm trying to remember. I don't exactly remember how it happened in the book, but do you remember the Kenneth Branagh Frankenstein film where De Niro played mm. the monster? Oh yes, 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 yes. Yeah. He it's Elizabeth that he reanimates, and there's this really fucked up sequence where he's dancing with her and she's dead and her head's like half shaved because he just shoved the new brain in her head or something and he's dancing around with her so technically she was his bride interesting but then i think the monster tries to claim her as his own and i'm pretty sure that's how it happens in the book folks at home listening if you want to write in and tell us where we're wrong or where we're right (laughs) But I, I also think that's where the term comes from, that in the book she was actually supposed to be his bride. Oh, I see. Okay. Because it was Helena Bonham Carter that played Elizabeth in the movie, and it was her right. that he was dancing around with. Right, right. So final thoughts on Bride of Frankenstein. I, I mean, again, I love this one. I think it's uh, on par with the original, if not maybe somewhat superior. Uh, again, I love how this one explored a deeper theme. And again, the highlight for me was a scene with the uh, with the blind hermit, and you know, of course, the ending is really w- terrific. The whole idea of like these two lonely souls coming together, uh, and they both have some form of deformity in some respect. I'm talking about the uh, the blind hermit. You know, it's, that's a really nice scene. And again, just the whole uh, arc of the character of the monster is just really nice overall. You know, it's I totally agree with you, and it's a good point that I hadn't thought of before that the fact that the blind man is blind. He's not judging the monster based on his looks. Exactly. Everybody yep. else that sees him screams and either attacks or runs. Sure. And he befriends him. Um, or like the innocent child in the first one, you know, uh, the, she has an innocence that she doesn't see a monster. Did, by the way, I meant to mention when we talked about the first one, did that whole scene, uh, aside from the fact that he killed her in the movie, remind <laughs> you of the Monster Squad? Yes, very <laughs> much so. Yeah. yeah. And I loved how they did that in the Monster Squad where she's holding his finger because his hand is so big. And she's yeah. like, see, guys, he's not scary. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I love that they sort of took that scene and turned it on its ear and, and made it something yeah. positive, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, but and that's another thing, too, about the Frankenstein monster is that he's... Wow, well, they did put a criminal brain in his mind, the brain of a murderer. I think it was sort of rebooted, first of all. I think the consciousness mm-hmm. that was there is gone, and a new consciousness emerged. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, you know how like amnesia can work? You, you can't remember who you are, but you can remember how to ride a bike or tie your shoes. Sure, um, yeah. I think that's what happens here, uh, is that you know he's this whole new being with a, a base template of knowledge. And then he can, he's sort of learning how to speak, but not learning for the first time. He's relearning it. He can understand right off the bat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, like, and even in this one, you know, he, he expands that. And I think that, um, you know, there's that childlike innocence that the monster has. And when he's attacked and provoked, oh, yeah. he's got that super strength that he can't control. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But, yeah, this is a movie that I love more and more with each viewing. I, I really appreciate it this time around, far more so than before. I got a lot of um, uh, a lot more out of it this time. Um, I, I definitely, like I said before, I finally agree with many who've claimed that this is better than, could be better than the first one, or superior. I think it's, it's a slim margin 
Yeah. Um, I think it's just because it wasn't bogged down with origin tale stuff. You know, those kind of films, like I said, they could be clunky, full of exposition. But this one, as I said before, it hits the ground running and doesn't let you go. It it's a, it is a bit of a comedy. I don't think it's a full on comedy. I don't know what yeah no the the talk about that is. But yeah, I I definitely recommend this as a must see. So folks, we're gonna take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're gonna discuss the third film in the series, Son of Frankenstein from 1939. Hi, this is Rigor, host of Then Is Now podcast and The East Meets the West. I just wanted to say thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate your support as we grow the audience for our shows. You can find our links to our Patreon page as well as our Tee Public page at havenpodcasts.com. With Patreon, you'll get a lot of exclusive stuff, including our monthly pop culture newsletter, cool gifts, discounts for Tee Public, and our special exclusive show, Then Is Now Filmmakers series, in which we interview directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects guys, basically anybody who works behind the scenes in film and television and get their insights into the process of creating films and TV shows. Also at our Tee Public page, you'll find cool merch that you can get or even give to others as gifts. You can find those links at our website, or you can go directly to tpublic.com slash stores slash havenpodcasts and patreon.com slash thenisnowpodcast. Enjoy! Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast, it's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We come from the retro future. We want you to be nostalgic for what's to come. A new channel and distribution network for smart people with bad taste featuring content from Church of the Subgenius, Creature Features, Cinema, Insomnia, Sleazy P. Martini and Guar, Troma, Corey Maccabee, Horror, Sci-Fi, Saturday Morning Cartoons, Midnight Movies, and Assorted Trash We Love. Add our channel OSI 74 to your Roku player or visit OSI74.com. All systems go. in the barony of Frankenstein, a monster created by man stalked through the country, meaning and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. Now, after 20 years, the son of Frankenstein returns, and fear grips the village anew. A man tainted by the blood of his father can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. As a man, I shall destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Benson, turn on the generator. Produced on a vast scale, Universal Son of Frankenstein presents the most fearsome cast in the history of the screen. Basil Rathbone. In his heart, warm human emotions. In his mind, the monster mania. It's alive. Alive, you mean? Yes, alive, but alive. I thought you said our experiments I know, I know. I do thought we failed, but we haven't. I've actually seen it walk. Karloff, rising from the past to spread new terror. 
Dugosi, sinister, mysterious, evil. You see that? They hanged me once. Lionel Atwill, grim hatred in his blood. One doesn't easily forget, Herr Baron. An arm torn out of the roots. Josephine Hutchinson, her young beauty a magnet to the menace around her. I hate it here, Wolf. I'm terribly afraid all the time. By heaven, I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers. Wolfron Frankenstein, son of Henry Frankenstein, relocates his wife Elsa and their young son Peter to the family castle. Wolf wants to redeem his father's reputation, but finds this will be more difficult than he thought after he encounters hostility from the villagers who resent him for the destruction his father's monster wreaked years ago. Wolf's only other friend is the local police inspector Krogh, who wears an artificial arm because Frankenstein's creature ripped out his real arm when he was a child. While investigating his father's castle, Wolf meets Igor, an embittered blacksmith who survived being hanged for grave robbing and has a deformed neck as a result. Wolf finds the monster's comatose body in the crypt where his grandfather and father were buried. His father's sarcophagus bears the phrase Heinrich von Frankenstein, maker of monsters, written in chalk under that. He decides to revive the monster to prove his father was correct and to restore honor to his family. Wolf uses a torch to scratch out the word monsters on the casket and writes men beneath it. Wolf revives the monster, but it only responds to Igor's commands and commits a series of murders, the victims of which were jurors at Igor's trial. Krogh strongly suspects Wolf has created a murderous monster similar to his father's due to marks on the victim's bodies, but Wolf denies it and tries to frame Igor as the murderer. Krogh doesn't believe Igor is the killer and so arrests Wolf for the disappearance of the Frankenstein family butler, Benson. Krogh then orders Wolf not to leave the castle. Nevertheless, Wolf is determined to throw Igor off his property and begins searching the castle for him. Later, Wolf finds Igor in the castle's laboratory and shoots him after Igor threatens him with a hammer. Igor collapses, apparently dead. The monster abducts Wolf's son in revenge but cannot bring himself to kill the child. Krogh and Wolf pursue the monster to the laboratory where a struggle ensues during which the monster tears out Krogh's false arm. Wolf swings on a rope and knocks the monster into a pit of molten sulfur beneath the laboratory, saving his son. Wolf leaves the keys of the Frankenstein castle to the villagers, who turn out to cheer the family as they leave by train, because they couldn't watch them go fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, first impressions, and when did you see Son of Frankenstein? This was actually my first time watching it upon uh, this viewing. And overall, I, I, I did enjoy it quite a bit. You know, of course, there is some uh, differences. Of course, we have a different director this time around helping it, uh, Roland, L Roland uh, V. Lee, who has, as I said before, considerably amount more credits at, as a director than James Whale did. Although, to be honest with you, upon look at, looking between the movies, I, I didn't really see much difference. And that's not to say that it's bad that there's no difference. I mean, so, I mean more so in that it's seamless movie to movie. It feels like even though it's 
different director, so naturally there's going to be a different tendency to do things differently. Feels like it was directed by James Whale. I, I agree, and I feel like it's um, he was trying to keep the uh, the style and the yeah. atmosphere of the second film without copying it. And I thought he did a great job doing that. Exactly, yep. Yeah. You know, he's kind of famous for The Count of Monte Cristo and um, I Am Suzanne, The Three Musketeers. He did a lot of films in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. Um, not, nothing too huge that, that jumps out at me, at least as something that I might have watched, except for maybe, like, he did a couple of Fu Manchu movies. He's uncredited as the director in that. Mm-hmm. Um he did Captain Kidd, which is a famous movie from 45. Oh. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, uh, another movie where, and, and, you know, last, when we talked about Bride, um, you referenced uh, German Expressionism. And I think yeah. he uses a lot of that in this movie. Oh, he does. Yeah. I mean, the opening scene alone in the jury room, um, I'm sorry, in the courtroom, there's a man sitting in the foreground. He's in shadow, but he's backlit. The camera, the camera pulls back, and you see more of the room. You see more of the people. You see more of the men in the back. But you know that that's classic film noir right there. That's German expressionism, and it's beautiful. Oh yeah, absolutely. And just the house itself. Well, first of all, it looks nothing like the one from the first movie. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's supposed to be, I guess, his you know the father's home from the first one, but it looks completely different. But hey, who knows? Because he's now. Wolf says he didn't remember the father, so maybe the father died when he was like one or two. But yeah. between the first movie and I'm sorry, the second movie and this one, they remodeled. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> now the writer on this is Willis Cooper, and um, he's only got like 12 credits. He did some TV shows like Lights Out, which is a famous horror show, mm-hmm. and uh, he did a couple of Mr. Moto films, but he also wrote. The Phantom Creeps with Bela Lugosi. Oh. And you may recall the famous image in that one of this, like, giant, weird, robotic monster thing with sort of an evil Buddha face on it. Yes. Rob yeah. Zombie used that in one of his music videos. I think it was Dragula. It was either Dragula or, I forget, it was one of, on that, off that album, the Hellbilly Deluxe, he used that creature in one of the, um, the music videos, so I thought that was kind of cool. Interesting. But our cast here, uh, while not as impressive as the other ones, I think it had some standout performances. So first of all, you got Basil Rathbone. Right. Who, he's right up there. He's just, he's like the tier below, you know, the top guys, the, the Claude Rains, the Karloff, Lugosi, you know, he's, you know, Cushing and Lee, he's right under those guys. And to me, he's probably the greatest Sherlock Holmes ever. Ha- yeah. Have you ever seen any of his Sherlock Holmes films? I think I saw maybe two of them a long time ago. Um, I remember liking them quite a bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're like Sherlock Holmes, but set in the 1940s. Right. Uh, in fact, I, oh, I was going to say recently, it was probably a couple of years ago, I had picked up a, um, uh, a radio. It was, they had also done radio drama with him yeah. and Nigel Bruce, who plays um, Dr. Watson. And mm-hmm. they did radio dramas, and like it was like a multi cassette. Uh, if those who remember audio cassettes, uh, it's a multi cassette box set that has yep. like all of their shows, and they're just so good. And I used to stay up late to watch the Sherlock Holmes films, and then the um, Charlie Chan. I almost said Jackie Chan. The Charlie <laughs> Chan films. <laughs> They'd play them like in Boston on Channel Thirty Eight late at night. Yeah. And um, 
you know, he, in my mind, I know there's a lot of guys like even Benedict Cumberbatch is a great Holmes and um, uh, what's his name? Jeremy, uh, Jeremy something. I can't think of his name on the PBS ones from England that they showed. Yeah. Um, those, he, he's, I think, my favorite. Yeah. Um, he was also in Comedy of Terrors with Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. And um, there's another one, the, the Knight in the Magic Sword or something. Mystery huh. Science Theater lampoon that movie. Nice. So, yeah, so he's, he's great in this. He's real young here. Karloff, of course, is back in his final mm-hmm. performance as the monster. I yep. think there was a moment in the 50s where Karloff did put the makeup on one more time to throw out a baseball at a baseball game. Oh, and really? Yeah, and then that's it. <laughs> that's really cool. But he just couldn't take, he couldn't take it anymore after this. Uh, he couldn't take the nine hours of makeup and stuff. Now, it's, folks, if you've listened to us, if you may recall, when we talked about the Dracula films, Bela Lugosi, we may have mentioned, was offered the part of the Frankenstein monster for the first film, and he turned it down because there were no lines of dialogue, and he thought that was beneath him. And he did come to regret that decision after seeing the success of the first two films, and I guess so he was convinced to come on board as Igor in mm-hmm. this movie, which I, w- I started to talk about this in, when we were talking about Bride, and I stopped myself... But um, when we were watching this movie with my wife and I, I, I looked at her and I said, okay, I said, that's Igor. In the yeah. first two movies, it was Fritz and yeah. Carl. Yep, yep. <laughs> but that's one of those things that people always believed or remembered, misremembered, I should say, that Igor was always Frankenstein's assistant. Yes, and well, and also, too, um, I, to me, like when this movie first started to get going and I'm watching it, and I'm like this. I'm like I'm like okay. This movie's Young Frankenstein. This one right here because <laughs> you have the relative of the original Doctor. You know, in, in the case of Young Frankenstein, it was what was it? It was, it was like grandson, a, wasn't he? A, a grandson, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then here is the son of yeah. the Doctor, and then he takes a train to this weird place uh, at, where where he's become legend, and you know he sort of denies uh, the father's experiments and then he meets uh igor so i'm like okay i'm like okay so the main plot was taken from this with pieces of the previous two uh uh in the movie so i just thought that was very cool but you know when when i saw bella Lugosi's name in the credits i was so for those of my generation they know like they probably think they know bella Lugosi because of ed wood with johnny depp where martin lando plays him I couldn't help but think of, you know, that scene. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. So were these two friends in real life? Because I heard that that scene was all false in Ed Wood where he's cursing out Karloff. And he's like, oh, Karloff, sidekick, fuck you. Karloff does not deserve to spend my shit. <laughs> that's, a, that's a line of dialogue that pops into my head every so often. Every, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Okay. So because I, I have I have I have heard from Lugosi from interviews with Lugosi's son that that uh, he'd actually did not hate Karloff and that they were actually friends. So I couldn't help but keep thinking of that as I was watching this movie. I'm seeing them on screen together. I'm like I'm like oh wow this is something Karloff and Lugosi on screen together. This is great. Oh dude. Oh, when we get into some of these movies, they were on screen quite a bit. And yeah. there's a movie they did together called The Black Cat, which yes. is really good. Yep, I heard of The Black Cat. They also did yep. the movie called The Invisible Ray the Invis- together. Yep. Yeah, yep. so. 
they did a few movies. Yeah, Sarah Karloff was asked about that on the interview I heard recently, and I think she basically said that she be- she felt they were friends, and she believed a lot of it was just publicity stunts yeah. to get people to go to their movies. Yeah. And so I, I don't know what the real truth is. I, I tend to believe that, you know, maybe early on, uh, Lugosi was kind of pissed at Karloff for being so successful with Frankenstein, sure, and sort of being regretful or for not taking the role. But I, I would imagine that if he had any character, he would have gotten over that quickly. You know. Yeah, exactly. And then speaking of young Frankenstein, another element they borrowed from this movie was Lionel Atwell's character as Inspector Krogh with the fake arm. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's all I could think of. Yeah. You know, and he he walks in and he. He pulls his arm up, and he puts it down, and my wife goes, what the heck's he doing? <laughs> What's that all about? <laughs> and I had to explain it was a fake arm. And then when he tells the story of how the monster ripped his arm out, he goes, he ripped it out at the roots. That just kind of shivered down my spine. I was like, ooh. Mm-hmm. Oof. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And to round out our cast, we have Josephine Hutchinson, who played uh, Baroness Elsa von Frankenstein, or Frankenstein. Um, Donnie Dunnigan played Peter von Frankenstein, the kid, who um, I heard him recently uh, interviewed on a Gilbert Godfrey episode as well. And, you know, he's really old, but he remembered it all and had some great stories. That's awesome. I can't recall if they asked him why his character had a Texas accent in this movie. (laughs) 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 The parents are clearly British. They're clearly from England, and he's Uh like... Hi, mommy. I'm gonna go out and go hunting. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had Emma Dunn as Amelia, Edgar Norton as Thomas Benson, Perry Irvins as Fritz, and Lawrence Grant as the Burger Master, Master Burger. Mm. So I did like the scene at the beginning where Rathbone's on the train, like you mentioned, and he's telling the wife. Well, nine out of ten people call that misshapen creature, and then you hear the conductor go, Frankenstein! (laughs) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) Which, the funny thing about these movies is there's not a whole heck of a lot of attention paid to continuity. No, there's not, unfortunately. (laughs) So, at what point between Bride and this movie did the town get renamed Frankenstein? If they were so traumatized, all the folks have been traumatized for decades by this monster that happened, the occurrence that happened. With Why is he being celebrated? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, and I think in later movies we'll find that it's still named Frankenstein at yeah. some point. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, this movie's been, you know, long hailed for its legendary teaming of Karloff and Rathbone and Lugosi. Sure. Um, you know, Lugosi's bizarre appearance and mannerisms as Igor definitely contributed to his indelible performance, you know. He does reprise the role again in Ghost of Frankenstein, which we will cover next episode. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, now, Karloff, on the other hand, uh, he's kind of less striking in this movie than the first two, although I did like his mm. fur vest. I thought that was cool. Um, that was different. Yeah, I like that. You know, and but I have to say, I had a problem with the fact that he lost his ability to speak in this movie. I did too, yeah. Yeah. Because th- this could have been a chance for the character to go from child to... Oh, I don't know. I guess like an adolescent to now he's like, uh, like a young adult. I guess if you will, like right. again, just like developing more as a being, as it were. Yeah, and I feel like there was one element where he grows because I, when I read it in the um, in the uh, synopsis, it reminded me when he chooses not to kill Peter. I think yeah. that was a level of growth for the character. True, true. 
you know, but they didn't really play up on that at all. They didn't really show him develop any compassion beyond that. So it would have been nice to see sort of that as a small subplot, although the movie was pretty long to begin with. Yeah. These movies. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This movie was like an hour and 40 minutes compared to the other two. Yeah. But again, as I mentioned, too, the the house, the, the crazy angles, the the just the weird staircases and shadows and stuff i really i remember as a kid being weirded out by it but i've grown to really love that yeah yeah no yeah no again this movie as directed it's uh there are some wonderful visuals um great cinematography great atmosphere uh and again piggyback on what you said before about uh the first movie having that sort of stage play feel this one had that too there were a lot of moments where the backdrops had these nice, really like long, shadowed um, textures on the walls, like uh, like a window shape, for example. That like the like it just looked like someone got up a stage play, and I mean that in a good way. Like almost like the set had dimension to it. Yes. Yeah. Almost like the the house was another character. Yeah. Exactly right. You know. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention, I wanted to mention when we were talking about Lionel Atwell, is I feel this is probably one of his best performances. I enjoyed him in this, yeah. He was really good. He was really good. I did notice, too, the, the lightning seemed to accentuate things when Wolf and his wife were talking. Um, not to the hilariousness of Young Frankenstein, but yeah. they would say something important and then... <laughs> yeah, I noticed that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is this, uh, this is one of those movie tropes that I guess it works, but as everybody knows... You see the lightning first, then you hear the thunder. Never at the same time. <laughs> because light travels faster than sound, people. <laughs> Evidently so, yeah. <laughs> but it's a movie trope. It's a horror movie trope. It works. So yes. I'm not going to complain about that. Yeah. Um, but did you notice the scene when they were in the library? And I can't remember if it was Wolf and his wife at first um, or Wolf when he's talking to the inspector. It actually, I think it was Wolf and the wife. Um, they're in the library talking. And oh, it might have been the butler. It might have been Benson, because he asked him where the library was, and he goes, oh, it's over here. Yeah, and he's talking to Benson, I think. And in the background, you can see the window, and out the window, you see the clouds and the lightning. And I'm mm. looking at it, and I'm thinking it wasn't matted in. I'm thinking it was a practical effect in the background where they had lightning strikes in the clouds illuminate, like, for a split second. Mm -hmm. And I was watching that through the whole scene, trying to see if it was just the same one over and over again, and it wasn't. They had all different ones. And then every so so often, the pattern would repeat itself. Um, but then there were times where it was random. So they must have somehow rigged up some kind of lights that when they weren't lit, you couldn't see them as yeah. sort of a lightning bolt in the sky. But then when it lit up, you could see it. And I just thought that was a brilliant special effect. Did you notice that? I have to look at it again, but yeah, no, I, I, it was a really good special effect, but uh, yeah, I'd be curious to know how they did that. Yeah, yeah, me mm. too. I, yeah. I definitely feel it was a practical effect because if it was matted, you would have seen you would have seen the lines. Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. around the the window edges and stuff. Exactly. Um, yep. But did you notice too, though? All right, so so that was really good. The house looked really good. We kind of mentioned that it didn't look anything like the house in the first movie, right? Uh, which was a traditional sort of a mansion, I guess. But then they go to the lab building. And first of all, in the end of Bride, the whole thing completely crumbled, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> and it's still half there. 
and it's sort of a uh, almost like a silo shape. <laughs> and the first one was a yeah. square. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, again, no real attention to continuity, like you said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, you know, you mentioned um yeah, and you mentioned Lugosi's neck, how how like, you know, look gross. Uh <laughs> yeah. Is it just me or he looked like the Wolfman with that makeup? He did kind of look like the Wolfman. Yeah, and, and this is what a couple of years before the Wolfman. A couple of years before the Wolfman, but also a couple of years before we get to Frankenstein meets the Wolfman as well. Yes. So you know, so it's almost like a precursor to that in some unintentionally weird way. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That is that is one of those cool unintentional things that I, yeah. I, it's really neat. And it was good makeup. It was disturbing to look at him like, ew. Yeah, no, he was, Lugosi was unrecognizable both uh, visually, but also even his voice. Didn't really sound like Lugosi at first. There were little shades where I was like, where I was like, oh, wow, yeah, no, that is Lugosi because it took me a minute to realize that was him. Oh, wow. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. I'm used to it because I've seen these movies quite a few times, especially right, the yeah, later yeah, ones. Yeah. I've seen, the ones we'll talk about next episode I've seen quite sure. Far more than I've seen these ones. Right. Um, but, yeah, and I he had, like, a set of fake teeth, on yeah. his, at least on his upper palate. So I wonder mm -hmm. if they redubbed his dialogue because I didn't have any trouble hearing what he had to say. Yeah, no, I didn't have trouble hearing what he had to say either. Yeah. So I wonder, because I know when you wear fangs or prosthetic teeth or whatever, um, it's, it's hard to articulate fully well. Yeah. So I'm thinking they must have overdubbed, had him overdub his own voice. Mm. Uh, but yeah, the the use of lights and shadows in this film is just amazing. Oh yeah, um, and of course every movie they've got to say something along the lines of "It's alive" or "She's alive" or "He's alive." <laughs> yes, <laughs> of course I do. <laughs> it, it became a staple. Yeah, which is cool. <laughs> I like that. I like oh yeah, that. no, it's cool. <laughs> um, now, did you notice too that in the in Bride of Frankenstein, the monster? About halfway through, might even have been from the beginning, he's got sort of a burn scar on his right cheek, and he, yes. of course, didn't have that in this one. That is true, yeah. That is true. Yeah. That, I, well, I have to wonder, did Jack Pearson do the makeup for this one as well? Uh, I'm pretty sure he pretty much did all the Universal movies. Yeah, right I would think so, yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to say yes on that one. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and it's funny because they kind of have this whole dialogue about... Like, um, Ego is telling Wolf, which, by the way, they don't say it, but I would imagine Wolf is short for Wolfgang, right? Like, you don't just name yeah. your kid Wolf. <laughs> like well, Wolf and, and, well, and, and they're, they're, they're again, the precursor to Wolfman. I was like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. I hadn't yeah. thought of that. But Ego is talking to him, and he basically says that he made the monster to live always. Yep. And in later films, they describe him as the undying monster. And I never huh. actually got that until this movie, watching it this time around, I should say, because there's a scene where Wolf is, is like, first of all, they're giving him an X-ray out in the open with everybody hanging around the X-ray machine. <laughs> so, so they're all going to die of cancer in five years. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but he's looking at him, and he's analyzing him, and his, the monster's blood pressure is 300 um, he's got bullets lodged in his heart. He's got this hyperpituitary condition. And his cells are fighting each other, which that doesn't really make a whole heck of a lot of sense. But right. maybe, it, <laughs> you know, it's movie science, I guess. But yeah, yeah. I, I guess when, but when you add all that up, 
Yeah, he and, and, and he even says that cosmic rays are part of what brought him back, or brought mm-hmm. him to life. Mm-hmm. So, which, by the way, cosmic rays are also what gave the Fantastic Four their powers in Marvel Comics. <laughs> That's true, yeah. So, yeah, now I can see it. Like, before I was always like, what do they mean he's the undying monster? And That's why he keeps coming back, and, you know, yeah. they don't ever mention again, of course, of continuity issues, but they of don't course. ever mention again that he's got five bullets lodged in his heart. I mean, how of fucking course. cool is that? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And then, you know, as the movie goes on, uh, the Peter, the little kid, is talking about this giant that he's seen, and um, Lionel Atwell, of course, gets wind of this, and he gets... I liked how he got really suspicious. And yeah. he just kept finding reasons to hang out in the house waiting to catch them doing something bad or to find the monster or whatever. And the kid does mention, oh, he had a hold of my arm. And Atwell, like, visibly winces. And oh, yeah. In that one moment, you could see him in his mind reliving the terror of reliving that happened in terror. his childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. What I like, too, when the kid is describing the monster and then uh, Wolf you know, quickly runs to, you know, find the monster to, uh, you know, to see him there, brings him to, the, and then the monster brings him to the mirror. That was a great scene. Yes. Yeah. That whole thing, too, is um, um, when he first meets the monster, I, I don't know if it was that, uh, yeah, and he, because he hadn't woken up at that point. That's another right. thing is the monster's kind of half, a, or kind of sleeping through half the movie. Right. Um, he's, he's looking at him. I think he even sort of grabs Wolf's face and he's analyzing yeah. it. And that whole scene with no dialogue, you could see that he recognized the resemblance to Henry Francis. Right away. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was. That was the mirror scene. Because then he, he looks in the mirror, and he starts to freak out at his own face. And, uh, right, right. Igor flips it over so he doesn't see it. Yeah. Which, that reminded me, too, of another scene from the Monster Squad, which I, I'm, I'm sure had to be an homage to this, where the Frankenstein monster is with the kids in their clubhouse, and he picks up one of the old old-style costume boxes, and it's a Frankenstein mm-hmm. costume, and he pulls the mask out, and he looks at it, and he looks at the kids, and he touches his face, and he goes, scary, scary, yeah. you know? And <laughs> That's it's right. It's a really sad right. scene. <laughs> no, it is, and again, going back to Incredible Hulk, there's a scene in the pilot as well where he looks at his face in the water, Yeah, uh, I, I think it was, uh, and, uh, you know, the face changes back to Bill Bixby, and he's got just the eyes. Uh, that, was cl- that was clearly an homage to this as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's another level that sort of adds to the tragicness of this character is that every time he looks in the mirror, he knows he doesn't look like everybody else. And that bothers him and that he understands that that's why people are afraid of him. And it's it's really sad, you know. It is really sad. Yeah, for sure. It's it's almost Elephant Man like in a way, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm a man. Yep, that's right. Absolutely. Um. And so Igor's sort of got this control over the monster since he pulled him out of the sulfur pit. Um, no, I'm sorry, he didn't pull him out of the sulfur pit. He he pulled him out from under the the burnt windmill. Yeah. And he somehow has this. They, they kind of uh, there's a point where someone references that it's almost elemental or supernatural control over him, and he uses the what the hell is that thing? It's like a demented clarinet that he has. Oh yeah, I'm like I'm yeah I'm like I'm like I'm like I'm like, I'm like what is that? <laughs> I mean, he must have made it or something, but, um, he, you know, uh, and I even turned to my wife at one point and I go, music soothes the savage beast, you know? <laughs> so, and we will see him do that again, but that's sort of like, almost like in a, a Pied Piper kind of way, where he's able to calm the, the creature with that, that musical instrument. That's true. Yeah. 
Now, did you catch this one scene that was, we mentioned, you know, uh, Lionel Atwell's character is kind of hanging around, and uh, Wolf is getting more and more unglued as the mm-hmm. movie's going on. He's, like, nervous because the cop is always hanging around up his butt. You know, he wishes he would leave so he could take care of the monster, get rid of the monster, whatever he wants to do. And um, he doesn't want to get caught. And there's a scene where they go to say goodbye to each other, him and Atwell. And Atwell clicks his heels, as they do in Germany back then. Uh, and I, I, I think I blinked or looked away for a second or something. And Atwell, because I didn't see what Wolf did, but then Atwell looks at him, like kind of waiting, and then he does it again. Did he screw it up, or do you remember that shot? It was a quick I scene. Think, I think I must have blinked on that as well, because <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't remember that. <laughs> It was weird. It was, it was, again, without words, which was, again, why I think this is one of his best performances. Yeah. He just tells him, no, you did it wrong. Do it again. Oh. And, and he does it again, and then mm-hmm. Lionel Atwell, like, nods and leaves. Huh. Um, so I don't know what that scene was all about, but, it, yeah, like no. I said, it illustrated his great acting. Yeah. Um, and speaking of great acting, when, when the monster finds Igor dead, because Wolf shoots him, like, five times... Um, he screams, and that I just mm-hmm. loved that. Yeah, no, that was that was good. Yeah, actually, this whole ending sequence I think is terrific. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The one thing I didn't understand about when they were talking about victims of the monster, they kept saying their heart exploded. Whose heart ever explodes? Yeah, I don't, I don't quite get that. Yeah, <laughs> I took that to mean that back then maybe that was just a way of saying, oh, they died of fright. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe like a saying for like, uh, like they, like, like they, uh, they were literally scared to death. Yeah, that's probably the best way I could describe it. But yeah, I think I had the same reaction. Yeah, you know, it's just. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. I thought that was bizarre, but you know, as as the movie goes on, now we've got this uh, uh, chaos ensuing at the mm-hmm. end where the, the oh I, I first of all I didn't put this in the notes but I loved when um, Lionel Atwell's character he had gone into the Peter's room and Peter's telling him about the giant and telling him about yep. his, the arm and everything mm-hmm. and he's kind of hanging back because he, he Peter had mentioned that the giant which is the monster didn't mm-hmm. come through the door he came through a secret door in the wall so yeah. you see him looking around, and he's suspicious. But because the kid keeps, you know, he's with the maid, and he keeps beckoning to go, he has to leave. So at a later point, he sneaks back in. And, and now it's like, it was actually kind of a crucial point, because everybody is trying to converge at the lab. And he goes in, and he finds the secret door. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. He first finds the secret door, and he opens it up, and he finds Benson's body. Then when yeah. the shit hits the fan, he goes back in again into the secret door, and um, manages to find his way to the lab. And yeah. I just thought that was really cool. That whole was sort of like, again, you knew what he was thinking without him verbalizing it. Yeah, exactly. And then there was a throwaway line at the beginning where the wife explains to the maid, because there's a thunderstorm going on, and they tuck the kid in the bed, and she's like, oh, you want to close the curtains? And he's like, I'm not afraid. And the mother's <laughs> like... <laughs> The mother's like, no, he's not afraid. Wolf actually taught him not to be afraid, and he's he's just that way. So and when the chaos happens at the end, and the monster grabs him, the uh, kid's totally not terrified. He's yep, he he's unfazed by the whole thing. Right. He's unfazed. I mean, his father comes in, he swings out, he you know, and uh, kicks the monster into the, uh, you know, uh, um, um, into that pit. It's yeah. like, and kid's unfazed, not crying, not screaming. He's just like, hey, all right, whatever. Yep, yep. Right. Another d- Woo, this just, is fun. Just, 
Just another day at the office. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but, uh, one issue I had with this movie, you've smelled sulfur before, right? Mm, I'm not sure that I have. Uh, chances are, I think most people have. You just may not know it. It Basically, yeah. it smells like someone farted really bad. <laughs> okay. It's like my father used to have these, like, for lack of a better word, they, they're like bricks. Um, yeah. That you would use to, sh- to scrape the finish off of a, a wooden piece of furniture. Uh-huh. And they had sulfur in them, and it just smelled like farts, and we would laugh about that all the time. Sure. Um, I think sometimes if you drive by some road construction, you can smell it. Oh, yeah. Okay, I know what you're talking about. Yep, yeah, yep. and it stinks to high heaven. Yeah, And he's got this sulfur pit in his office, or, or his lab. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're like, oh, doesn't it bother you? He's like, oh, no, it's fine. It's like, really? No, I'm sorry. Just a little bit of sulfur is, like, stinky. A giant 800-degree sulfur pit has got to be nasty. You know what I kept thinking of when that scene? I kept thinking of that scene from Labyrinth with Jennifer Connelly and David Bowie where she's, like, she and uh, the the little creature in that movie, I forget his name. Oh, Hoggle. Yeah. They're they're passing by the, um, the, 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 what the hell is it called? Uh, It's like, it's like a, it's like a, it's like the, um, the pit of stench or something like that. Right. (laughs) And it keeps and it keeps making farting noises the whole time, and <laughs> and then you see the big hairy creature. Uh, what's his name? Um, oh, wait. It's been a while. Oh, since oh, uh, Ludo. And yeah. Ludo's go and Ludo's going smell. <laughs> I, kept, <laughs> I kept thinking of that in this scene. I'm like, I'm like, oh man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That stinks to high heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! But of course, you know we've got another fire. We got another fire. Yep, it's just it's a trope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, final thoughts on *Son of Frankenstein*. I enjoyed this one again. Great atmosphere, great cast. I think the first two are somewhat better movies, but I mean, even though James Well is not at the helm, it still works. Absolutely, absolutely, I agree. I think um, it's its own entity while yeah. retaining. Uh, I don't want to say continuity, but a, a connection to to the previous films, and uh, you know, almost like not missing a beat. It's yeah. just like one, two, three. These movies work together so well; they hold up together so well. It's very rare that a sequel and a, a second sequel are as good, or at least on par with the first film. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So um, I I love the camera work. Uh, there's just so much to love about this movie. Uh, I highly recommend this one, too. I think people should sit down and watch them in a row. It's not a very long watch, as we said. You know, hour and six, hour and 15, and hour and 40. Um, I definitely, you know, if you're starting out in helping someone watch old horror movies and enjoy them, I think these are great examples. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Okay, folks, thanks for joining us today for part one of our discussion on the Universal Frankenstein movies. Don't forget to sit down with someone you know who hasn't seen these films and have a great time watching them. You can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can find me on my website, which is storiesmotion.com. I'm also on Facebook. 
Twitter, and Instagram at Stories in Motion. You can also visit our website at havenpodcast.com where you'll find our sister show, The Eats Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Western movies. And while you're there, click on the Patreon and Tee Public links to get some exclusive stuff. That's right, folks. And don't forget, Dennis Now is on YouTube, so please visit our YouTube page at youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. And please subscribe to our YouTube page and make sure you uh, hit the little bell there to get all our notifications so you can get our latest videos. And please share them with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com. Excuse me? (laughs) You heard that? I did. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yep. There's your own pet. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God.